Please note, for maximum picture quality, it may be necessary to adjust the tracking control on your VCR. To paraphrase Orson Welles' obsession with the power of editing from F for Fake, editing is the last stage of the process between the dream in a filmmaker's head and the public seeing that dream here. Films are saved from disaster or even salvaged from existence. Different edits in a film can really change how a film could be perceived. And in Touch of Evil, we have a story of an auteur's struggle to plead with the studio to save a film that he had originally envisaged and the 58-page memo he wrote to do just that. This is Adjust Your Tracking, a podcast around adventure to watch a century cinema decade by decade, year by year. I am one half of your hosts, Liam Delaney, and with me is... Hi, I'm Ollie. Do you think we've um, think we can save this podcast from disaster? No, no, no. It's unsalvageable. <laughs> We're suffering technical difficulties today. But also with us soon is uh, is Natalie, our old friend Natalie, as well. Hello, nice to be here. Hey, how are you doing? Hi. Hello. Hello. I think my introduction was actually worse that time. So how's life treating you, Natalie? You're good. Yeah, fine. Yeah, not bad. Um, still you know not back at the theater but um i've moved which has been exciting um oh, yeah i moved to watford so uh so that's been quite quite an adventure and um yeah, yeah and i'm bringing my cat with me and now there's three cats so that was a bit of a a bit of a challenge to try and get them to all get on and everything but they're all fine now and uh yeah i've just been yeah just life is just ticking by isn't it and not a lot is happening but i'm trying to keep busy and writing and doing bits and bobs but yeah it's how have you ended up with three cats well andy has two cats so and we've moved in together so oh, now we have yeah. three cats i am a step mum to two cats now. <laughs> so, <laughs> um but yeah it's really cool it's really nice so uh yeah so it's it great. very quick, very like, yeah, let's just move in. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful news. You have got yeah. a new job though. You were telling me about your new job. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing like games mastering, if that's a, if that's a word, for uh, an escape room. So, so mm-hmm. I only started this the other day. So it's all, and knowing my technology skills, you can imagine it's a bit of a challenge, but it is good fun. It's all, it's all like online. Uh, escape rooms so so yeah it's, it's good fun you're in character and you sort of help people go through the escape room so i get to do a bit of acting which is great and um yeah but so still, what's so, what's the character for the room and what's like the setting or anything like that what are you kind of portraying so it's it's an mi5 agent um that's gone cool. rogue and they have to try and figure out who is the rogue agent and and you know we have to gather evidence to sort of um, bring them to justice kind of thing and i'm one of the agents that helps them along the way so yeah. i'm glad you're like an agent and not like miss money penny behind the desk oh god yeah oh no <laughs> no no Can you imagine? it's just not me is it oh, <laughs> But yeah, so um, no, it's good. It's good fun. I haven't. I've, I'm still in training at the moment, so I'm I'm being allowed to do some next week, I think. So yeah. So you haven't had a live audience yet with it. No. So, so not what does yet. that entail? A bit of firearms, you know? Firearms. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I could probably get that. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking, can I get some sort of gun going? Or no, it's probably a good idea not to. But yeah, um, it would just be just be talking to them and being in character, and you know, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And I suppose as long as they're 
they're nice, then you're okay. It's like with anything when there's a, a live audience that you're interacting with. If mm. uh, you know anything can happen, so anything that's what happen, Yeah. Go on, give us a little <laughs> bit. Like, what kind of th- give us a little bit of your character? Like, what kind of things do you say and do then? Oh, I, do you know what? I haven't even I haven't even done it yet. Oh, you haven't would, done it yet. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still in training. So, but it would be things like, "Hello, yes, we need to find the rogue agent. So if you <laughs> follow these clues, then uh, you know we can maybe find them if you've got any intelligence at all. <laughs> and uh, if not, I'm here to help. And, like, and then you sort of yeah, you know. I love what, the fact that you're a jolly good uh, kind of. Yeah, it's like a, it's a young Dench. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly oh, that's, that's what you should be that is like the prequel that's what it is oh <laughs> my gosh yes that's 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 what i'm aiming for in life young dench that's great thanks <laughs> she's still the best bond girl for my money especially in um uh what was it skyfall she was the best bond girl oh uh, she yeah that was great that was so good yeah i did love her in skyfall she was the best thing about yeah. that and the, it really missed her in the next film actually i thought yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did. It, I think it made it made Skyfall a really good film, actually. Yeah, because it was all about her, really, wasn't it? Which made a change. But yeah, I was thinking about um, Bond films. I was seeing that they keep playing a lot of the old Bond films, like Pierce Brosnan and things. And I don't know if you've, you've noticed, but have you seen any of those lately? The ones that were before um, Daniel Craig... And just yeah. how twee they are when you They're look back at them brutal. now. And you're like, how was I alive when this was happening? <laughs> I get what you mean, though. There's a certain amount that I thought I was watching really... I think this... I, I keep watching this with 90s blockbusters at all, really, that I think I'm watching something really adult and you go back and watch it. It's a really quite childlike, quite fun, quite, like, um, kind of sense yeah, to it. Not yeah. very serious as well at all. That was a big thing about 90s blockbusters. They had to be really just, like, comedy films, almost. Yeah, and I quite, in a way, I do miss yeah. that in some senses yeah. because I think everything now very is very serious, serious yeah. and yeah. you know, and you've got to have a back back story for every yeah. character and an explanation for it, a psychological explanation for everything, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but then there is something to be said for these kind of more flippant and silly films. But I was watching it and just thinking, it seems so much yeah. older, and uh, compared to obviously the whole. The whole like like we we're saying like the narratives that we're used to nowadays um and they weren't that long ago they were what sort of late, no. late 90s something like I that. think as well with uh, like the action kind of genre or at least like definitely that kind of spy genre film massively changed with like 9-11 mm. as well and they just completely changed what filmmakers wrote as like international terrorism oh, gosh, or wrote as yeah. like the hero to it and yeah. stuff like that. So you got like Bourne coming in and Bourne just completely changed the game because of that. Like Bourne just took this stuff very seriously. It was very hard and very and very yeah, kind yeah. of tough and, and very serious as well. Like this was a real yeah. threat kind of thing. And Bond just kind of latched onto that yeah. really. And it does, as you say, looking back at kind of uh, like blockbusters pre 9-11 is like a different world. Yeah, uh, a completely different world. Yeah, it really is the Daniel Craig, and obviously, yeah, you're right. It must have been something to do with the, the 9/11 and uh, and just what people people saw as a threat, I suppose. Yeah, and what that meant. And I think just yeah. the screenwriters, what they're writing and stuff like that, completely yeah. changed. It did. It did mark a big difference. And I think we've kind of got out of that post 9/11 blockbuster a little bit now. But if you go mm. back and watch, kind of like like stuff from like 2001 to 2000, you know, 2010 ish, whatever. Mm. It's re- everything has this shadow of 9-11 over it and the shadow of like yeah. how horrific that was kind of yeah. thing to to like to the action it's still 
glamorized don't get me wrong like they still love yeah, glamorized yeah. action and stuff like that but it's just yeah. it has this big serious overtone and big kind of morose overtone of people kind of dealing with it and playing out that kind of trauma on screen mm. like the best example i can think of really is um and i doubt either of you watched this but it's um star trek enterprise which was running around that time oh, and yeah. uh and literally for one first two seasons of star trek enterprise are very kind of old school and silly like um, it's not very good to be honest but there are good episodes in it mm. and uh, then 9-11 happened and then literally the following season after that they did a whole season that was basically about 9-11 but in Star Trek and to, and like at the time I remember everyone being so obsessed with it saying you know eventually they're taking this seriously and they're giving us adult stories and they're giving us something really really kind of um, you know uh, new and and kind of meaningful but to go back and watch it now, it plays out really badly. Mm. Like, and it, like it plays out as the opposite to, I think, what they were trying to do. It plays out as actually a bit kind of silly, actually, and a bit kind of immature. Because yeah. I think mo- cause I think a lot of the screenwriters hadn't processed what they were feeling about 9-11 yet, you know? And I think they were just playing out this season that was um, so much about, like, what terrorism and the fear they felt about terrorism from a foreign agent playing it out through Star Trek, really. It's really a really fascinating, weird season That's of very stuff to watch. Yeah. No, I mean, I haven't seen it, but that does sound really interesting. Well, I mean, around yeah. that time, you got shows like 24 were massive, weren't they? And they yeah. were yes. like, and like even the latter series of the X-Files, I think, I mean, the X-Files always kind of played into that a little bit, but definitely towards the latter end of it, because I think that crossed over with 9-11, like the last two seasons. Uh, yeah probably i can't quite remember i never really watched them too much but and that's why like loads of that media that time lost opens on like a like a plane crash and stuff like that like it's it's Mm. um loads of the stuff playing at that time was was really just playing out that trauma um it's kind of weird really but at the time i didn't process that at all and going back now it's so obvious Mm. (laughs) it's like so obvious that that's what's going on because you know that's what that's what world is but for you um i mean have you guys watched anything this week or or um, anything to tell us about, Ollie? I've watched a few things. So I watched um, watched two films. I watched uh, Escape Room, going back to what Natalie's been up to. <laughs> Which, um, you know, it's just uh, light entertainment. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, a PG-13 kind of horror film, isn't it? There's no real blood and guts in it or anything. Is it PG-13, really? I think so. It's It's... It's very tame in terms of like violence. It's a bit like Saw, I guess, but obviously minus the blood and guts. Yeah, I found it less. And, and uh, it's a bit like a Final Destination, like a bit of a TV yeah, kind of vibe yeah. to it. I kind of enjoyed but, Escape Room. I thought it was all right, really. It was, um, I thought it was kind of fun, if I'm honest. Yeah. It wasn't so, it wasn't quite so, I don't know. What's that? What do they call torture porn of yeah. Saw? Oh, yeah, it wasn't no. quite that. And... I just liked not watching a horror film that was doing that. But like really. it, the way they set it up, you knew which four were going to be the ones that kind of survived yeah. to the end because yeah. they're the only ones you've got like set up. And then, um, and then the fact that they've they've basically world building it, aren't they? So like they're kind yeah. of opening it up to like a big huge conspiracy, they're trying to franchise it, aren't they? Like, <laughs> but I think another one is coming out soon. So. Yeah. Um, whilst I watch, I watched the the re. No, it's not a remake. It's like a reboot of uh, Wrong Turn. <laughs> and, um, it was all right. It try, it's trying to do something a bit different, but again, it's just about a bunch of young adults who take the wrong turn when they're told not to go a certain way. They go a certain way, and then 
I get that's such a weird thing to to put it onto that franchise I mean no one's no one's like you know I loved wrong turn I can't wait to watch (laughs) another wrong turn like they could have called it they could have called it anything I think those the straight to DVD films were actually quite popular because when I worked at the video shop they're always rented out those like those sequels because I think there was like five of them in the event in the end and they all centered on this same family and they were kind of like an inbred like redneck family whereas this one it doesn't focus it it totally totally changes that and it's basically about like a it's kind of got a bit of a village in it where like a spoilers there's like a a bunch of people who live in the woods that are kind of outside of community and they've got their own rules and laws there and once you cross into their territory then they're kind of you know that's when shit happens well it was all right (laughs) and then uh i watched a series on netflix and it's called murder among the mormons or something like that what's it called you love your netflix murders don't you (laughs) i want to see this i saw it advertised the other day i mean you know it's well worth a watch and you know like i mean i don't know much about mormons other than what book of Mormon told me the actual, you know, the, the, <laughs> it's probably not the best text, the <laughs> but like, do you know what the do you know what the story is about that though? No, I don't know anything. Basically, there's a series of bombings where several people get killed, and it's all framed around um, of Mormon like historical documents. So like actual uh, rubbings from the plates and things like yeah, that, and the original kind of plates. Yeah, and you're like, okay, all right then, <laughs> and like, um, but it's all kind of. I don't know. I don't want to spoil it because it's quite interesting. Okay. Mm. Well, it's worth a watch then. Is that yeah, there's only three episodes, so it's kind of... And it's not like... That sounds better. God. It's not exploitative. Like, um, it, it doesn't like... It's not like saying Mormons are stupid, Mormons are dumb or anything like that. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think yeah. it's directed by Jared Hess, who did um, Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, yeah. And if I'm right. correct in thinking, the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite is a Mormon. Uh, I think I so. Know. I think there's some sort of connection there, at least, and I think he's from that area where, like, Salt Lake City, kind of. Yeah, Utah. Utah. Yeah. Well, I'll check that out. Actually, have you watched anything, Natalie? Uh, yeah, I saw a couple of good films. Actually, I saw one called it was last week called His House, um, and it was just on Netflix, and it's quite a new one. But it was so I really enjoyed it. It was um, it felt almost more like a play on film than a film at times because it was so stylized right. but i really enjoyed that side that side of it but basically it's about like um south sydney's couple and they're refugees and they get brought to the uk or they escape and they and they uh they get brought to the uk and it's and it's basically it's like a horror it's a horror horror film but it's it's like a psychological one and it's it's about you know ghosts or something in the in the house that they're given so they're basically just dumped in this in this house somewhere in the uk and uh and told to get on with it basically with no help or you know it, sure. and it, oh it was very interesting and um that sounds really cool it was really good and it was really well acted and and it's it's a horror and you think it's ghosts but then you're like is it is it psychological there's a lot of their own history comes up throughout it i really enjoyed it um so yeah i'd recommend that i think it was it's uh uh actors in it are as um i'm, I'm hope i'm gonna get names right here but sope dirisu and wunmi musaku okay. and they're the two leads and they're brilliant in it and um and she i, I recognize the woman from luther i think i've seen her before she's really good right. 
and uh, yes, yeah, so I'd really recommend that one. Um, but yeah, and I that saw, great. I yeah, it. yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, uh, News of the World with Tom Hanks. Oh, uh, I liked News of the World. And the little girl who was just gorgeous, the yeah. Helena Zenga, I think her name is. Yes. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was. I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks. Anyway, I do really like him, and uh, I just thought it was just a really nice film sort of can just sort of get lost in and uh, yeah you know i think yeah. i said I, I said to ollie i watched this a few weeks ago actually and i think what i said is that i just want to watch tom hanks tell me the news like <laughs> yeah. just yeah, just sit there true. as he reads the newspaper at me i was very happy at those <laughs> scenes they could have gone on and on and on like it was just great it's true isn't it because it's just there's there's certain films at the moment that are just and, and also tv shows where just comforting and there's something about that sort of like you say obviously there was some really dark elements to it and it's you know but but some of it was just really comforting and his relationship with the little girl and stuff is really really lovely and stuff it's sort of like it's a really good companion piece to the searchers which we watched last week it's like it's um almost the same story in a lot of ways it's just like it's just told very differently um or like a different a more modern take on maybe how we look at this time period I guess is is one way to put it. Oh, cool. Um and yeah, I yeah, honestly I would recommend watching like together or you know seeing them close to close because they do kind of sh- they, they you know they have the same kind of elements to them. Just you know Yeah, oh different. no, definitely. I will check it out. And uh I'm trying to think what else I and I saw a really random one, uh Prisoners from 2013. I love that film. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen this one. I really enjoyed it. I was like how have I never watched this? <laughs> um yeah, I I'm glad you say that Ollie because I was I was like is it me just liking something that's not very good but I thought it was brilliant and there's lots of twists and turns and good acting and yeah it was, it was it's um oh, who directs it what's his name uh um, Denny Villeneuve Denny Villeneuve yeah. who you yeah, know yeah. he yeah. did Arrival and uh Sicario yeah. and uh, Blade Runner and he's, uh, uh, yes, he's doing June so he's a he is a fantastic yeah. talent yeah, I mean, and the actors, I mean, you know, some great actors in there. Like, I, I always get excited when I see Paul Dano in anything. Even, yeah, and then I, you know, I love He's Paul not Dano. even, oh, I love him. I just think he's absolutely, there's something about him. I could, just can't take my eyes off him when he's mm. acting. But, um, but you know, and you think, and he, in this, he doesn't even have the biggest part. And that just sort of shows you, like, the, you know, the quality. Because, obviously, somebody like him to want to be part of, this and then you know there's Viola Davis and Hugh Jackman and yeah. yeah it was great really good and I was like how have I never seen this you know I was really surprised I remember it's properly as Jake Gyllenhaal was kind of getting he was kind of getting re I don't know not re re kind of like re-looking at what what films he takes it was properly in that kind of well he did like, Zodiac didn't he a couple of years yeah. before that and- mm. he did Enemy with Villeneuve as well and it was just that kind of Place yeah. him as like an adult film actor rather than like we're looking him in like a teen anymore, really. But I mean, I'd love to like... see his characters. I think he's called Loki, like Detective Loki or something. But I'd love to see him in another film because yeah. he created this character that you yeah. don't really know anything about, but he's got all these weird tattoos and like kind of yeah. ways about him. Yeah. And like you don't really know anything about him other than that he's a cop who's quite determined. And and I'd kind yeah. of like to see his character in other things. I thought that he thought that would have been quite fun. But, um, 
Yeah, you're so right, actually. Now I, now I think about it, there was so many little quirks that he had. Like, I think he had, like, a bit of twitch. There was something yeah. going on. Like, he had all these... He'd really developed his character. And like you say, none of it was really explained, which I love because you you just think, oh, there's so much more to this person. You just, you know, I'm not really- saying they should over-explain it because I think that sometimes loses yeah. it. But I'd like to yeah. see him again in another film, that character. I thought he was good. Yeah, it was interesting. And sure. I mean... Jackman always put like the one thing you can say about Jackman is he always puts his all into anything he does. Oh yeah, yeah really yeah. does. Yeah. He, he surprises really... me every time I see him in something. I think I don't <laughs> I know why. I kind of feel the same. But I like think I feel the same. Like in a good way. I always yeah. my default for him, and it shouldn't be like this. Is always a musical actor, and then yeah. I see him yeah, in something yeah. like this, and I'm like, oh, he's actually a really good dramatic actor, and yet I. I forget that, and then I'll see him in something else. And I think, oh, it's Hugh Jackman; he's a musical actor. And then you're <laughs> <laughs> you're watching me, and I'm like, he's brilliant. And I don't know why my brain always defaults to that, but he does. He always gives 100 percent, and he's yeah, he's great. I mean, can't take away from him really. You need so. to watch him in Swordfish, though. That film is hilarious. Oh, really? <laughs> he's so bad. He's like a hacker <laughs> in it, but it's like just painfully like. 90, it's like 2000 it's just after he did X-Men so it's like 2000 or 2001 or something like that it is around just, then yeah and it's just so painful you've got John Travolta with really bad hair I mean he always has bad hair in every <laughs> film he's in but, uh... okay no I'll definitely check that out because I I've written that down like swordfish because yeah I've never bad. seen I've never seen that it's just about... <laughs> I mean films about hackers generally are quite bad <laughs> it's Unless true it's hackers that yeah. is hackers true. is amazing it's because no one knows how to visually show it. It's everyone's yeah, get obsessed with it, and yeah. it's and this obsession with trying to make it cool is what Swordfish is about. And it's it, and it's cool and kind of threatening, and they try and do it in a visual way, and a and yeah, it's it's terrible. Like it's really terrible. <laughs> I have to. Have He's a huge Dragman though, because I like he. Am I right that he kind of came to acting, not came to acting, but came to kind of film acting relatively late? He'd been doing just a lot of theatre. Really yeah, he, he was on the theatre a lot, and he was doing Broadway a lot, and he was doing, uh, you know, did, did musicals at the National and stuff here, and yeah, I think he, I think it was quite late on that he did film work, and I think that's why in my head I'm like, oh, he's you know, musical actor who's who's taken on this really big dramatic role, and then I'm sort yeah. of thinking, hmm, and then you're like, no, he's really, and he was always brilliant in the musicals, so why, yeah. I don't know why my brain does that, but no, he's he is very good in it. So. Well, he's he's 52 now, and X-Men was like, what, 21 years ago? So mm. he was at like early 30s, I guess, when he... Mm. And I remember it was just because, like, to a lot of people, he's nothing but, you know, Wolverine as well. So from the, from the for some people, he's like a musical actor that's weird to see him do drama stuff. For the other people, he's just Wolverine, who's really weird to then see him do musical <laughs> acting as well. <laughs> so he really it, does have yeah. these two sides to him, really. Which is but, great, really. Yeah, it is great. Everything, you know, which is hats off to him because that's quite impressive, really. Yeah. And I will, as whenever it comes up, I'll always say that Logan is amazing. Yeah, and I uh, always want to rewatch Logan <laughs> when I talk about Hugh Jackman because I think he's fucking brilliant in that film. And everything's good about that film. And Patrick Stewart was robbed. That's my <laughs> yes. constantly, constantly <laughs> saying. <laughs> Have you watched anything? Yeah, actually, I've watched quite a few things. Um, two things, definitely. I'll talk about, well, one, I watched Promising Young Woman, which. I've um, uh, been looking forward to watching this. Yeah, I want to see this. I really recommend, I really liked it. Like, yeah. Um, even just like it's it's so cap- captivating really is the best thing about it throughout the whole thing and you don't know what it's doing 
and it's just a, like it's you know it's a revenge like like rape revenge fantasy type film mm. but it's definitely the first one i've seen that it's like actually you can see that it's from a woman's point of view and it's not a man writing this for yeah. a woman um and because it's directed by emerald fennel i think her name is mm. um you can just see that kind of that it's it's going from a different way you know it's a different way of portraying this a different way of looking at it and um it's really good and i just i was just did not know what was going to happen i was so captivated by it all the way through that i absolutely recommend it i really really enjoyed it and yeah, weird enough with it i watched um i care a lot which is on amazon uh and that's um rosemary pike is the lead in that rosemary and pike it's was- Rosamund, sorry, yeah, yeah, Rosamund with Peter Dinklage as well. Oh, and actually, yes. and Diane White, and Diane Weiss, Diane West, Weiss. Diane Weiss. Is it Weiss or uh, West? I, I never know how to say her name. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, and she's amazing in it. She's at Diane Weiss. She she kills it. I love I love her in it so much. And that's like a it's a weird like um, it's a weird kind of con man kind of film where um, Rosamund Pike is kind of conning elders out of their fortunes by putting them in kind of guardianships. Which oh, gosh. This is all kind of, like, synced with me because I watched, like, the Britney documentary, oh. like, this week as well. So I watched the Britney documentary about her being in her own, like, guardianship. They call it mm. conservationship. And her being trapped in that by, her like, a father. And then I watched, like, I Care A Lot, which is all about someone using that scam to try and make money out of people. Um, it's... It's quite dark and it does struggle with some elements. I think like part of the problem is I think Rosamund Pike is really hard to like her. Like she's doing something yeah. that's so evil, it's a bit hard to get on her side. She's she's good um, at that because wasn't she in Gone Girl as well? And she was yeah. like yeah. she plays the yeah. ultimate. <laughs> yeah. She does get cast in those roles. She's very good at playing quite cold. Yeah, you know. and she is brilliant. And when you kind of mm. when it you do get on her side, it does work. It's just it's it really struggles. Like it's just one of those things that's really hard. And they try and make like without spoiling the plot, they try and kind of like make it make more sense. But um, I don't think they quite nail that um, okay. as much as I wanted them to. But I don't know if they needed to. It's one of they like we talk about like unlikable protagonists a lot. Um, and it's definitely they're going for that, really. Uh, but yeah. it was really captivating. I really enjoyed watching it, and it it swished past kind of thing. So I would recommend that as Ooh, well. Yeah, that sounds as good. Cool. Quite a good double bill with kind of promising young woman as well. Actually, mm. some girl bosses. <laughs> yeah, coming definitely. through. And uh, yes, yesterday I did a double bill of coming to America and coming to America. Oh, oh no. I can't wait! I can't wait to see coming to America. Amazing, the new one. And um, I didn't. <laughs> I actually, I really don't have much nostalgia for coming to America. I, I don't know about you guys. I love I just, the first one so much. It was not I one of those really films that played it. a lot. So I just, I, that's why I wanted to rewatch it as well, because I was like, it's pointless me watching the sequel, and I don't think I really remember the original that well. Um, so I rewatched that, and yeah. I heard really the sequel good. just kind of replays the hits of the first one, kind of. Not really, no. It's no. weird. Um, it's It's not very good. I would say that. I wasn't expecting oh, that's a shame. <laughs> but it's not yeah. bad in a way that people think it's bad if you say that to someone. It's just right. like, it's very watchable and you can tell they really had fun making it. It's one of those. <laughs> like, it's um, nice that Arsenio Hall's doing something again. 
because I haven't seen. Yeah, the biggest the problem is there's not enough Eddie Murphy in Arsenio Hall. Frankly, no. <laughs> that's actually like I was watching a guy and I wanted more of those characters after literally because I'd literally played it after watching the first one. So like, and, and it came onto this, and I was like, I want more of like I just want to see more Eddie and I like watching Eddie Murphy like and mm. I just want to see more Eddie Murphy doing stuff like really that's and um in a lot of ways it's just a bit of a parody on Black Panther and that's a bit annoying <laughs> like really <laughs> is um, sexual chocolate back in it Randy Watson I can't I can't give you spoilers <laughs> <laughs> but um and it's a it's a okay a little spoiler it's about like female empowerment a little bit, but okay. the film doesn't do the same work that the script's doing, and that's oh, a bit okay. of a. Ah, <laughs> right. okay. They're playing yeah, a yeah. different film that's actually yeah. the one that's written. Got you. And <laughs> um, it, that's kind of disappointing, I guess. But it's it is quite watchable. I won't say it's really hard to watch or anything. It is quite watchable. It's just they make really weird choices that you. I think you'll spot when you're watching I it, know really. one of people's complaints before it came out was that it's like it's PG-13 whereas the other one you know there's swearing and stuff like that in it so mm-hmm. I don't know if like they've toned it down for the sequel not, sure, not that it was crazy yeah. but the first one but I don't. I didn't really notice that it wasn't so much. You know, when they reboot these eighties comedies, they kind of really sanitize it, and yeah. then they just like hit the hits. I don't think it was quite doing that. I think they were trying to do something different and were trying to kind of play it relatively seriously. I mean, the weird thing about coming to America is it's it's not packed full of jokes. It's one of those eighties films that's like it's funny because the it's funny, yeah. not because it's just punchline, punchline, punchline. Mm. Um, and I think they they were trying to do that a little bit with this which was quite commendable really it just it kind of misses the mark really um but shout out to um uh wesley snipes who nails it he's so good he's the funniest thing about the film by far oh, wow like um, yeah wesley snipes is a good performer he just during like the 2000s he just something happened and just like yeah i mean i know he went to prison for tax sure. evasion but, which um, puts a hamper on you <laughs> yeah it's just a little bit <laughs> But, um, but he's really good and I do recommend watching it it's just it is it's it's a little bit 30 years too late well I, w- <laughs> I watched like, last you know. year I watched one of Eddie Murphy's stand-ups for like for the first time in years and oof, mm. that's, a, yeah. that's a tough watch that's a tough watch that's a tough like watch. some of it is funny but then some of it you're like oof. <laughs> yeah yeah I can imagine <laughs> yeah and there is a there is a cameo in coming to America that's really hard to say that I know (laughs) there is a cameo in there that made me laugh that I was it wasn't expecting and it is like a famous cameo in the original so that I thought that was really cool like should they have called it like coming back to America or something I don't know something that would make it a bit easier to say no I think the title's fine actually I like the title fair enough (laughs) and I guess the one thing to say is they don't spend almost any time in america oh okay fair enough really they really don't like they probably in they're probably in america for about 10 minutes one time because where that, is he king of like, zamunda is that what he's zamunda called? yeah the whole film set in zamunda that's what i mean it is literally like black panther it that's literally what the film is it's very <laughs> weird but it was it's watchable enough and it's just i like seeing eddie murphy like, yeah do more films eddie murphy <laughs> like, like bowfinger was great i love that i mean that's 20 years old now that film but that was a good film. well um dolomite was great last year oh, i need like, to yes, I still need to watch yes I have, you ever, have you seen the original dolomite no i no. haven't I it's know. amazing I, I think it's actually on youtube it's so good i will actually probably should try it's and watch brilliant. that 
but yeah um i think we've probably blathered enough now especially because we were we started recording about 12 times a <laughs> <laughs> good blather is so um today's film we're covering uh 1950 what year are we 1958 58 1958 like i was saying on on the podcast that kind of that kind of failed um <laughs> we've actually been doing this for nearly a year now yeah and it's yeah. just like i originally thought we were going to do we were, like we'd all, already be halfway through the century but you know we're not we're not even a third <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit decade. of an ambitious <laughs> ambitious goal there Rolly. well no if you think if you 52 weeks a year 50 films that's that's half a century, but no, we're uh, <laughs> not quite there yet. No, we're not quite. Our release schedule's not that quite, not that kind of tough. No, to be well, no. <laughs> <laughs> but well done for nearly a year. That's cool. Yeah, we're okay. almost finished the fifties. We're getting there. We're towards yeah. the end now. We're wrapping it up now. So this is our penultimate film of the mini miniseries, and it's 1958's *Touch of Evil*, directed by Orson Welles. <laughs> This was her wedding night. Where was the man she had married? Who were these hoodlums? Older legs. Starring this outstanding cast, Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, I could love being corny if my husband would only cooperate. Orson Welles, co-starring Joseph Kalea, Akim Tamirov, with guest stars Marlena Dietrich, Jaja Gabor. What are you trying to do? We're trying to strap you in the electric chair, boy. Only the offbeat, original, creative powers of Orson Welles could bring you so suspenseful, so gripping, so different a drama of love threatened by vengeance. Mike may be spoiling some of your fun. Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. Of a struggle between titans. You framed that boy. Framed him! Of a manhunt like nothing you've ever experienced. A cop now, I'm a husband. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife! So, um, Touch of Evil tells the story of a kind of police investigation after a car bomb explodes on the US-Mexico border. And it... Yeah, that's actually pretty much it. That is actually yeah. it. I <laughs> nailed that. Michelle. I'm quite pleased with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to kind of ramble on to all the kind of different elements, but no, that's the film's about that. Like, uh, very simply, the film's about that. But um, that does kind of take away the kind of complexity that's kind of in this film like baked into this film really um and kind of the crazy fascinating history of how this film got made and like kind of drama surrounding it and stuff like that 
Do you guys uh, know any of that? Or like- well, I mean, I just know that it was based on a book called Badge of Evil. Is it Badge? Mm. Yes, it was yeah. called Badge of Evil. Yeah, yeah which yeah. I think, if you call the film, that's a bit telling that that one of the cops is going to be crooked or something like that. But, yes, um, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you can say that's probably why they but, um, went away from that. But I mean, I just know that um, Charlton Heston was the one that got Orson Welles. Like, I think he, I think he got him the job or suggested. Yeah, it's him. kind of a great he, story, actually. He suggested Universal. he directed it or something. Like yeah, that. Universal called Heston and asked him to do this. Um, they uh, Heston describes it as a very routine police story. Didn't think much of it. Thought it was kind of crappy, but he's like Universal do a lot of these police stories, so I'll just do another police story. And they were talking, to, but he was going like. Look, this is so routine. Like it, it, it might be good, but it depends on who you get to direct it. The script's not fascinating, and the people at Universal were like, "Well, we haven't got a director attached yet. Have you got any ideas?" And uh, they happened to like Orson describes himself as accidentally doing this job. Well, he was because, cast already as the part, though. Wasn't yeah, he? he was cast as the heavy. Is they they said, "Oh, we got Orson in to be the heavy, though, so it might be quite interesting." And 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 um, Heston was like, "Well." you know he's actually quite a good director. Why don't you ask him to direct it? <laughs> mm. And the way Heston describes it is like, it's like on the phone he'd suggested his mom directs it. Like it was like they just went silent and just like absolutely <laughs> we'll quiet. <laughs> and then um, apparently Orson says they called him and went, look, I know we've cast you to be in the heavy in this film, but um, we can't pay you any more money. But how about directing it? Would you be up for that? And he, he apparently he just went, yeah, I'll do that as long as I get to rewrite the whole thing. Like, and they were like, "What?" And like, as long as I get to rewrite all of it, <laughs> like it's my script. Yeah, <laughs> like, he rewrote it all in ten days or something. Yeah, like ten that. days. He rewrote the entire On a film. typewriter, or I don't wow. know. Yeah. That's amazing. He said he had like twelve secretaries working for him or something like that, like around the clock. Or oh, something. so he's like, like literally like dictating. Dictating and writing. I don't know how it worked. You know, I don't know how it worked back then. I'm picturing like, there um, with a big cigar and a bottle of yeah, I am. Oh, yeah, just manically typing away, just pulling out paper, <laughs> throwing it behind him, screwing it up. And um, I mean, Orson is just a force of nature. Mm. He's so fun to have. I like him being back on the podcast. I like Orson Welles. <laughs> I like he's such a character. Like, and uh, at this time period, he'd been in um, exile for about ten years in Europe. Um, he kind of it's kind <laughs> of it's it's so confusing with Olsen because like the way even Charlton Heston says this I, I, I watched an interview with him about this film and he says that Orson Welles like he can't ask for money he has to have a fight like it's like he, he says that like he like if Orson if Orson's just given money and given a salary it doesn't easy. work it's too easy. Like yeah. he, he, like he doesn't even like. Like Heston said, that Orson has to fight, even if he doesn't have a fight. Some people have to <laughs> like make things difficult to. for themselves. I think I'm yeah. one of those people. Otherwise, yeah, I think a, I think you, a lot of artistic people, people are because you thrive on challenge, and if you're not challenged, mm. then it just kind of like, what's the point? Mm. That's really he, interesting. Yeah, that he's got that element to him, but yeah, he gets great results. So. Yeah, but weirdly, that's what's the weird thing about Orson because, like, obviously, you know, obviously, like, um, uh, my God, my brain just died on me. <laughs> but obviously, he made one of the best debut films ever mm. in Citizen Kane, like, and that just wrote him a career. And on that point, but since since like um, since uh, Kane, his whole career is like just a series of him fighting, like uh, the um. 
the Magnificent Ambersons is famously just like this kind of lost film that that was, that was meant to be a masterpiece that the studios took away from him, and because of that, he kind of left Hollywood and a lot of other things, and he was just making films in Europe. A lot of his films in Europe were after he did like a bit of a Shakespeare period, which like he did Macbeth and Othello, which I've never watched either of those. And I've I seen think... Othello, and he's in blackface. I was going to say he's in blackface and Othello, oh, isn't he? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And um, both of those are just like incredible films. Like just um, just from making them, you know. Like I think Othello was shot in Italy and Morocco and France and Portugal or something. You know, like just just this insane kind of filmmaking schedule and and shooting reams upon reams of stuff that would take him years to do and edit. Like which was the big sticking point really for a lot of his films. He just came out of a film called Mister Arkadin. Arkadin which was shot in 1955. And that, again, it was filmed in Germany, France, Spain, Italy, and, like, no budget, you know, filming, like, weeks of the weeks of the weeks of films and stuff like that. I am, um, I have no cultural memory of Mr. Ak- Arkadin, Arkadin, mm-hmm. or whatever you pronounce that. I, like, that's, that's a film that hasn't, like, it just hasn't made an impact on me culturally. I don't know if it's good or not, you know, but I know that was the last thing he did before returning to Hollywood to shoot TV with Lucille Ball. That's what like, he was doing at this time. And uh, and yeah, as he says, out of nowhere, this film was handed to him, Touch of Evil, which on its release, like, again, because I think this is his career at the moment, it made no impact. This film had no impact. Like, um, it it was played as a B-movie. Well, it was I just, think, it, but I think the studio just kind of, they were so unhappy with how it all turned out, like in the yeah. edit and stuff, that they probably just went, here it is. Yeah, kind of, but I think he won. He actually won some awards for it, though. I think mm. it did. It's a really interesting story. Again, is like so. You know, we'll cut back to the editing, but be, you know, Universal release it. They shove it out there, and there's one distributor who works for Universal in um, Europe who fights with the studio that he thinks the film's really good, and he puts it up for an award at the Brussels Film Festival, and uh, it ends up winning the grand prize at Brussels. But this. But this guy gets fired from Universal for not following the their orders to not put it up there. Gosh, that's so, terrible, it's isn't it? Yeah. Oh, so, like, this film just is this this kind of elemental thing that, like, just bred destruction almost throughout its wake and you know, getting released and stuff. It's very but, yeah. apt to a film that's out coming out soon. I think there's some shades of Justice League. I think kind of like. Maybe it was taken maybe from the director, yeah. and then later yeah. on, it kind of got re-edited and stuff. I'm and sure this pushed. is a much better film than Justice League. Left. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah, and as we were saying, this film got basically it got into edit. Orson and Orson doesn't know why he was removed from the project, though. I think we can guess that it was <laughs> like, but apparently he had spent three months in the studio trying to edit this and was getting nowhere. According to the Universal, they saw a rough cut of it and um, hated it. Well, he was so working that with point, a guy called Edward Curtis. Edward Curtis, that his editor. Yeah, it? and then he was replaced with Virgil Vogel. What? Virgil that's a, Vogel, that's a yeah. tongue twister. <laughs> he was replaced by another director as well because Universal basically hated what he'd done with it. I think Josh Wedden coming in. Yeah, Orson <laughs> thinks that they thought it was too dark and they thought it was too confusing. I think that's what Orson thinks his problems were, which I think because we just watched basically Orson's cut of the film, I think we can see 
judging by other 50s films why the studio would maybe struggle with that. I think the version we watched is as close as it could get to his version because I still it think it's got yeah. some of the reshoots in there and some of the ADR that was in there. But I think he, yeah, I yeah. think he approved of them or said, fine, you can leave those in. Well, basically, yeah. So like, they shove this film out. Orson sees it. Orson hates what they've done to it. So in like a final plea to try and fix something, he writes this 58-page memo to the editors about what he wants to be done with the film. It's amazing. It's an amazing piece of thing to read. Uh, it's just like behind the kind of like eyes of how he sees why the film works and arguing about like um, what he thinks should work for the film as well, which I think is really fascinating to read. Like it's not just an angry thing. It's him going, look, we're going, we're, we're working together here to make the best picture we can do. And we both want this to succeed. So, and I think he even says that, um, uh, I had the quote somewhere, but he goes, um, he goes that, uh, yeah, he goes like, you're, I'm the last person I think that you want, you want to be hearing from, but I implore you to just listen to a few of these points about why about what we're doing 57 page yeah. 58 There's a few pages of minor it. points and he, he even <laughs> says that he's he ignored um some points that he had problems with and has left others in but these ones are particular about the the kind of the edit and uh it goes i must face the strong possibility that i am the very last person whose opinion is likely to carry any weight with you i am therefore limiting myself to points that might genuinely interest you points that seem to me actively infer interfere with the story itself and confuse the narrative line and the big thing issues he had was one of one of them was soundscape and the way the sound of the film wasn't working the way they edited it and the second one was about screen time and the stories the different stories we got in this because what the universal edit in 58 had done was um kind of pack kind of made it clear that kind of janet lee's story was a b plot in their eyes and kind of like crushed it and kind of put it in weird places in the film whereas um orson in his memo makes it really clear that he thinks that both stories need to play out with equal screen time cutting back well, and I think, forth i think they did lots of quick cuts didn't they originally kind mm. of like cutting from like moment to moment i think you know but yeah he wanted he basically wanted um both heston's and lee's bits to play out with equal screen time um and to not seem like a B-plot because he wanted you to, to not really see what the narrative was coming. And I think the big thing that Wells had done to this film, which I don't think the studio were happy with, is that Heston is not the lead of this film. And no. obviously they mm. were kind of selling the film on Charlton Heston leading this. And well, he doesn't Heston really have an not, arc in it, does he? No. So... Like, the lead of the film is Orson Welles. Yeah. This is a film about Orson Welles, about Orson Welles' character. Yeah. And more, I think this film is about Orson Welles as well, which I think a lot of Orson Welles films are. And I think that's what he did to this story, is kind of investigate himself and really put this kind of hideous figure on screen that's full of his own, like, kind of insecurities and full of his own kind of, like, questioning about his kind of unwillingness to bend and kind of obsession with the end product, really. And well, I think he was you see a, this for his He was uh, quite a progressive guy, wasn't he? And he was like, you know, into equal rights and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. At that time. I mean, I know he did a few films in, you know, blackface and stuff, but like so unlike the character in this though, who is clearly racist. Yeah. Like, yeah, clearly. He, that's not yeah, a view that he shares, obviously, because obviously he plays his character is quite horrible, so he's putting all that into 
but it's it's definitely that element of dislike like unlikable protagonist mm, and definitely. weirdly enough the humanity and the kind of the nuance he gives to his character in this really does play him out as a great protagonist like you mm. get the downfall of him you get where he's coming from and you get this uh like rationale mm. um francois tufon tufo tufo yeah uh, when he reviewed Touch of Evil, he said that Orson Welles created a character in corpulent Hank Quin- Quinlan, who is so unrepentantly revolting that we end up falling in love with him. And he created a character in Mike Vargas, a dude who's so straight that it hurts that we end up despising him. And I think that's like, I'm not going to argue with Truffaut. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I think that's just a really good reading of the film, that he has managed to nail that elements of of making a dislikable protagonist engaging which yeah. i think comparing this to the searchers is a really good thing to watch back mm. and back um because it, you do not get that you do not get that kind of relatability in the searchers that i got from this from quinlan and then like it's not that i at all thought he was a great guy i just really felt myself like understanding him and feeling him and mm-hmm. and kind of getting at the core of that character really that it's a bit of a tragic tragic kind of tale yeah i'd i'd agree with that and i think that it's sort of ahead of its time in that way because i think we sort of think of character you know protagonists and sort of having the <clears throat> excuse me having sort of a a flawed protagonist is quite a modern thing and it was mm. it was really interesting to watch and sort of see how much depth he put into it and how much you you do question well you know at the end i think they you know they say that his instincts were correct so you know he wasn't completely wrong about some of his so it does leave you thinking like what's right what's wrong it has all those things that i think that we associate with more modern films Mm. and with a you know that but actually it was there he was very ahead of his time i think well wells was aware of the character he was playing whereas i don't think john wayne was do you know what i mean like (laughs) yeah i think that's the difference yeah um, yeah 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 you know there was humanity in Wells's character because of the fortune teller character who kind of yes you know the end like she 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 knows there's there's good in him and or there was by the way point that's the um fantastic marlene dietrich Mm -hmm. um possibly one of her last roles really uh the story of her hiring is brilliant awesome wells tells it as well that the producer didn't know she was in it and it wasn't until the rushes started coming back, the producer was like, what the fuck, Marley Richards is in this. <laughs> um, so they had to call her and go, uh, you're in this picture. And she's like, yes. And they're like, well, what are we paying you? And she was like, well, if you put my name on it, then if you don't put my name on it, then it's just the minimum. If you put my name on it, then you can call my agent. Like, And that was her like... Little kind of like fight with the studio to get some to get like that to you know a little fight with the studio about. I think there was something with Janet Lee in regards to that though. Like her uh, so. agents didn't want to tell her about this job, and she was like, "Look, I'd work for nothing to work with Orson Wells." I think that's the thing. There was a bit like it's Orson Wells. Yeah, <laughs> he sent her a note or something. He sent her a note saying it was it would be a it's a pleasure to work with you on on this film, and so she called her agent and said oh, um, I'm doing this film. And they were like, oh, okay. But yeah, she was like, no, I'm doing it. Like, I'm definitely doing it. I'll work with Dawson Wiles. Like, But he just went straight to her with a note. Like, oh, 
Okay, brilliant. Well, when you're I awesome, well, you he just works. go straight awesome. to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, we're talking yeah. like a different level of filmmaker, aren't we? Like, he's just royalty, you know. It's a great story as well. Like, he, he's so horrible in this film. He's so, like, um, he looks terrible. Like, it's, like that's mm. what I'm saying. He looks he, he absolutely wore, terrible. Like, 40 pounds worth of makeup. Like, a lot of people think, oh, that's just Orson Welles. No, he was wearing makeup in that, and he had loads of padding, and he had, like, yeah. facial yeah. things put on and stuff like that. And, like, and you that's know, such a non-Hollywood thing, you know. Yeah. Especially like, then. Especially yeah. back then. I think that's the thing. It's so against type for that back then, which I think is really impressive. Yeah, and yeah, like absolutely. he's always always seems to be sweating and yes. you know, he's always uh yeah, eating or drinking. Like there's always something there. Every time you see him, he's he's his poses, his backs to the camera or kind of almost a little bit three quarters, and he's just turning around to the camera all the time. Yes. With his cheeks yeah. pushed out. The the <laughs> The slobby, saliva like soaked stogie. Like his, yes, like the wet end. Of this, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. And he's always got this tone of dismissiveness, even to like the camera, as you say, as he turns his back to him all the time. Like, you know, that like he is so dismissive of like the world and he's so like trying to cut himself out of the world because of whatever trauma he's got. And mm. it just plays through on the camera so I mean, well. Like Harvey Bullock in the Batman universe is this yes. character, really, isn't he? I literally wrote he looks like Harvey Bullock yeah. in my notes. And even like, the cops yeah. are dressed like the ones from the Batman animated series with the yeah. coats and the kind of. Again, another well story that he said that his wife put a dinner party on just before he was filming this. Um, the, the interviewer said to him that you look horrible in this film. And he was like, yes, I know. I look like a monster. Don't I? He was really happy about that. Like, <laughs> and. Uh, and he said that his wife was putting a dinner party on. He had all these guests around. I hadn't seen him for a while because he was back in America and stuff like that. And they and they kept on walking up to him, telling how great he looked. And he was like, and he was like, what? Like, <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to look horrible. And all these people coming up telling me he looked great. And he was like, what did I look like before? What was I going through? <laughs> and that's just said about um, Charlton Heston's appearance. <laughs> Yeah. I, oh wow! I didn't get that he was <laughs> Mexican to start with, and I was like, "Why? Why is he got this really? Ta- he's really tanned." What are they? <laughs> and then when I figured out, I was like, "Oh, he's meant to be Mexican." Oh, that's really oh no. Weird. Well, it's as soon as I heard his surname <laughs> in the film, I was like, "Well, that doesn't compute." And then you look at him, and then, like my, I was just my brain couldn't compute what was going on because i knew it was heston yeah I was like, and he doesn't look at all mexican or you know he's just and he's the actor who i'd never th- thought would ever i don't know like it's just yeah yeah and the fact that he said one of his greatest uh regrets in film was not putting an accent on and i was thinking thank god he didn't put oh, thank god on. <laughs> yeah. Could you no, it. no it's true <laughs> No, it's true. It's better that he's in. But yeah, it was just a quite. I think from again from like a, a sort of a modern viewpoint, you sort of look back and it's just so confusing nowadays because it wouldn't happen nowadays. But you just yeah, it was like hang on, he's got a sort of really posh American English sort of voice that's mm. uh, you know, and it's quite Received, RP. Isn't it? yeah. Received, yeah, yeah, and then it's like, and he's got a really good tan, and what's going on? And oh, he's Mexican apparently, and you're like. Um, I was just like, his hair's so black. What have they done to his hair? It it did, same as you guys. It took me a little while to realise that they'd brown-faced him, basically, to make him Mexican. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. It's, it's, I will will say flat out, I loved this film. 
Mm. And I would say it's a triumph of this film that that doesn't drag it yes, down. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, could destroy any other film, basically. Like, yeah. um, it's very confusing. And it's just, it's. I don't want to just, I don't like to hand waste stuff saying product of its time because we watched, um, was it Better Than Beautiful, which had the uh, Mexican actor in it whose name's going out of my head. Um, so it wasn't like there wasn't great working, like, mm. Mexican actors mm. they could they could use and other other producers were choosing them for these roles like that happened it's not just a product of its time they wanted Charlton Heston in this and he was Mexican so that's it like you know they made that decision but I believe in the book that character is not Mexican I think he's Mexican American I I have a feeling that Wells turned him into a Mexican character because he he repurposed the setting of the film I think Uh, did he I believe so that that makes sense yeah that okay. makes sense. It's yeah. really, really fascinating, actually, sticking on the Mexican-American border. And like, and it's a thing I've never seen before, actually. I don't think I've ever seen, like, a, you know, especially an early film set around mm. the border. The border's a late thing in, in the 20th century. It becomes a thing. If you guys don't know, the Mexican-American border only becomes militarised in the 70s when, the, when mm. it kind of war on drugs happens. Before then, it was an open border. And in this, even in this film, they talk about the border. Yeah, they do, yeah. And they're proud of it being open. They're proud that it's the longest border in the world without a machine gun on, I think is what they say mm. in this. And, it, and that is absolutely the way the border was looked up until, like, the 70s. And it's and so to set it on the border there and to make it, like, issues about the two police departments, different people fighting, it's all about things clashing on that border, you know, ways of policing the you know the rigidness of of Charlton Heston's character and and the kind of like the bent cop of Orson and stuff. It's it's really fascinating that he chose on that border, which at that time wasn't. Maybe there was issues. Maybe there were early issues coming out of this time about the Mexican border that led to the militarization. Maybe that's what we're seeing here play out. But um, it quite a stark difference to when we're watching like Rafifi and stuff, where the border is. They're, they're talking about borders as a, as a past tense, really. And I thought that was quite interesting now. We've got this American border that becomes, in the latter part of the century, a big issue mm. leading up to Trump, you know, <laughs> like where it becomes the major issue in America. Mm. So it's quite fascinating, really, that we saw that. Um, he shifted the location setting from San Diego to the Mexican-United States border. Wells renamed the protagonist from Mitch Holt to Miguel Vargas, mm. stating that he made the character a Mexican for political reasons. I wanted to show how... Uh, uh, how do you pronounce that? T-I-J-U-A-N-A. Tijuana. Tijuana. And the border towns are corrupted by all sorts of mishmash. Publicity more or less about American relations. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. And that that plays out massively about his um his memo, actually. Like that right. that comes through his memo loads about what he's trying to do with this film. He's you know, um Orson at his heart was a radio producer. Um, that's what he did first, and that's what he did before he made films. So, well, soundscape to him doing was, the, uh, you know, the, the, what do you call it? The War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Famous producing course. that and making that, yeah. yeah. Um, so, soundscape to him was really, really important, and his memo talks a lot about the wanting it to be kind of mambo music, the sound and when the mambo incredible. music kicks in and changes, like that's what he was obsessed with in this, like more than a lot of things. 
that opening shot of this film, which is incredible, oh, God. It's, yeah. like a, it's almost like a three minute, maybe four minute long take. Yeah, three, yeah. four minute, like, yeah. The sound, what is it, non-diegetic, whichever one, diegetic, non-diegetic, we know it's like sound within the film. There's yeah. just so many different sounds coming from different sides of the screen and it's kind of the way it, oh, it's just fantastic. It's like, one of the best opening shots I've ever seen. I, it's yeah, one of the it shots in a film I've ever seen, frankly. Like when it yeah. started off, I thought they were going to, you know, what's it called? Like a Texas switch or whatever, you know, when they kind of like a stuntman where they'll throw a stuntman on the floor and then the real actor will pop up or something or opposite. Do you know what I mean? I oh, thought, right. Is that called a Texas switch? I've never like heard that. Ah, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I thought they were going to do that with the car. So it kind of, they, you yes. see them put the bomb in the car, then it goes behind the building. I thought, okay, so when it comes out, it's going to blow up. But it doesn't, it carries yeah. on. That to um, have a crane go from like close up of the bomb to showing the whole street view yeah. of like it was just I was that just my was jaw amazing. was on the floor, yeah, it so was. Good. And it didn't stop there. It follows the car all the way down the street. It follows the couple because you see Heston and Lee come yeah. in, it hears their dialogue, it hears the dialogue with the border patrol. It's mm. it's amazing. Like and actually I'd quite like to read, if I can, what Orson Welles says about that shot because one of the things he hated was they put the credits over it in the original cut and he didn't want the credits there because he says that his big thing was that um, he thinks if you have credits over this, the audience knows that it's safe, that nothing's going to happen because credits are written over it. And what had they done? They slapped credits over it and they slapped different music over it as well. And he was like, the whole point of it was was meant to be the the street like getting the flavor of the town and the mm. border town with oh, all these different bars yeah yeah it's brilliant yeah so he says like um as the camera rose through the streets of the mexican border town the plan was to feature a succession of different and contracting latin american musical numbers the effect that is of our own passing one cabaret orchestra after another in a honky-tonk districts on the border loudspeakers are often over the entrance of every joint large or small each blasting out its own tune of a way of a come on or a pitch for the various tourists the fact that the streets are never to be loud with the music was planned as a basic device throughout the entire picture. The special, the special use of contracting mambo-type rhythms with rock and roll will be developed in some detail as the film goes on and at the end of this memo, when I'll take up details of the beat and also specifics of musical colour and instrumentation by a scene-by-scene -scene and transition-by-transition -transition basis. So his, his whole thing about this start is that he wants you to hear the mambo and the rock and roll and mm. that will lead us every time we change between Heston and Lee, we change that music, we change from Mambo to, to the rock and roll and the, whatever threat that proposes onto that. Uh, leading up to the attack on Lee when there's no music, when the music finally gets cut. And that was his whole, and that's, he's going on about this in the edit so much. <laughs> like he, mm. so much during this memo, he's going on about this. And I just thought it was like, um, just this input and look into like, into what he thinks or what a filmmaker thinks about what he's doing like like none of this is by accident when you read this you know none of this not when Orson Welles shoots a film anyway I just love the look of it like you know it's quite mm. low-key lighting and um but apart from when it's a close-up it's very bright on the actor's face but it's quite low down so you're gonna get that shad that kind of mm -hmm. that you know kind of like film noir kind of creepy kind of shadow and the actual, like, because it was all shot on location, but it looks incredible. Yeah. Like, there's one yeah. shot where Heston, um, it's just before he gets the acid thrown at him. Mm. And you just see the papers, like, just blowing around in the background and just, 
uh, or like the angles are like canted on some of the shots and you just see there's kind of like the neon lights in the background like say motel and stuff like that it's just so good when the acid hits the wall behind him as well it's so visceral mm. like like burning away that paper on the wall and things it's it's so like yeah it, just... was, it, it was a person as well wasn't it on the on the it was like mm. a poster of yes. a woman i so think it kind of yeah. Shows yeah. You, yeah yeah shows you what it would have done it's quite shocking really i was quite you know so oh gosh that's quite severe and you know takes you into the severity of what is going on between some you know the gangs and the police there and stuff and like gosh they didn't think anything of just throwing acid at him like wow okay you know puts you yeah. right there in and puts you right into that which again i thought was quite shocking for the time and uh you know yeah but yeah I, I agree the look of it is just stunning the fact they tried to put credits over that opening shot is is criminal really i can't i can't imagine <laughs> well, why I just, they would do that you know? i think that's just how films were though back in the 50s yeah, like, yeah. they were always yeah. in front yeah that's just what the universal said they did it because that's what you did and that's not the type of filmmaker orson wells is yeah. you know you don't just do it because that's what you do you do it because it has a reason to it and the fact that the credits are at the end of this film is entirely where he wanted them like that's like he didn't want them up front he wanted to open with this huge shot and get you involved in that and and not to dilute that kind of opening which that shot was just that shot's amazing that like I'd ne- I just didn't didn't expect it and just to think he's doing that with the technology available to him you see mm. the sides of the sound recorder at the end of the film <laughs> like it's just <laughs> it's incredible I think some of the stuff and there's another tracking shot as well later in the film when they're in uh, Sanchez's apartment during the interrogation and it c- comes comes into the um comes into the apartment with them and then just all that dialogue as they're going, kind of interrogating and questioning and rubbaging through the apartment is all a single shot. And it's just all them, like, I don't know, like, the amount of planning to have them all moving about that and coming up to the, like, the front of the screen or going back or going off all the time is just remarkable, really. Well, it's one it of the is... first instances of a film using, like, a handheld camera, I think, as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I guess you can see why. You can. There's, there's the one shot later on where uh, Heston's driving off. I think with the you know um, Orson Welles is like, uh, sec, you know, he's like his partner. Oh, it's with the D- it's with the DA. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's a bit wibbly wobbly, but you yeah. kind of got it. It's like following the car. It's like following the car, like from a, a aerial shot. It's pretty cool though. This it's that's a bit they cut actually. That's in the memo that he oh, fights it? for that to go back in. Yeah, he fights for that to go back in. He says, "I know it's rough and ready, but it's meant to be. It's meant to have that energy to it and stuff." I and uh, that's... one of the one of the edits was actually found by like a a, a uni professor or a college professor who found like a uh, a sixteen millimeter print. I think of one of of um, Orson Welles's early drafts of the film. I think. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, so Orson cut it. They didn't like it. That disappeared into history. Universal takes it in 1958 and releases their own cut of it. Um, sometimes using some of Wells's things from the memo, but not really. Uh, yeah, 1978, I think it was, when this just 16, like as you say, just reels were found of Orson's original print was was out there. Um, that got released then as well, which then at that point that started the kind of people actually looking at this film. I think Orson's career is full of like lost masterpieces and that was like one of the early things of people going well what is this this is interesting this is a this is a really interesting film this is really good let's look at this again and the movement started then pushing on to kind of 
um, to talk about this and kind of critical reevaluation of it, which eventually led up to 1998, I think it was, where um, I think it's um, uh, Walter Merck um, as an editor and Rick Schmindlin, I can't pronounce his name, uh, both of those worked together with the kind of original reels and worked through Orson Welles' memo, that 58-page memo, to go through it and try and recut the film and reposition it how like uh, how they can. Actually, quite interesting. I think the DVD has the memo on it as well, <laughs> so you can read the memo of, associated with it. I don't know if that's on screen as well, but that'd be quite cool. Well, if you get the Eureka Masters of Cinema Blu-ray, I think it's got all three cuts on it. Oh, right, cool. Oh, wow, that's cool. It'd be yeah. good to see. And uh, it's just it's from all intents and purposes, we watched the uh, we watched the nineteen eight cut, nineteen ninety eight cut of this. So we're looking at more Orson's original film. But um, for all intents and purposes, that completely repositioned the film. Uh, it took what was quite just a lost film that no one thought thought about at all, and it just pushed it out there as this quite, I would say, masterpiece. It gets it gets it got reevaluated. It gets a lot of new lists. It gets. It gets completely pushed up there as one of the best, you know, one of the best films, and in definitely in terms of like noir, it might be one of it's up there as one, the probably one of the best noirs that's ever been made, and such a comfortably adult noir. I mean, the you know, third like man's definitely up there as well. Another, I mean, he didn't direct it, but Orson Welles is in it. Yeah, Orson Welles is in it. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and coming at the tail end of the noir of noir, really. Yeah, yeah. fifty eight, like we're. We're pushing at the end of noir, really, uh, as being like just this force of nature, and I think this does have all that in it. You know, this um, is a film that's learned from French noir, which Orson Welles was definitely watching when he was mm-hmm. over in Europe for ten years or so. So, and oh god, I I was just so impressed by it. I was so impressed of how like grown up the narrative was, and just how like. The look of the film, just the look of the maturity and the lighting and the shots was just a joy, really. Agreed. Mm, definitely, definitely. And it was so interesting to see, you know, some of the themes being dealt with as well, I think. So, you know, having the corruption of the police and having the the Mexican police being more, you know, they're the ones that are actually doing things by the book. And, mm. uh, you know, so that was really interesting. And there was always this talk about mixed you know they were obviously a mixed couple one was mexican one was american yeah. there's mixed parties i didn't know if that was to do with again mexicans and americans and you know later on when they had the party the party you know that is actually basically just being uh generally just being attacked but um mm. you know uh yeah dealing with some of those really sort of tricky themes that we think of today and sort of mixed relationships you know um and yeah, I just thought it was, I just, again, just kept back, coming back to, I mean, it looked, obviously it's visually a masterpiece, but you know, just the, some of the themes in it were just so modern to what, to what I would have expected of the time. And sort of the fact that, that you can have this really corrupt policeman who is, you hmm. know, who they all look up to and they all, yeah, you know, yeah. and he's a really, Even at the end, they look up to him as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's it was very interesting. I thought in that way, and uh, and obviously there is obviously the racism thing being brought up within it, and yeah, there was just so much. It was so much in it that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting the way 
Janet Lee's character, uh, Susan, is uh, she was like, it, it reminds me a bit of Hitchcock in a way, sort of the way she was framed. It was almost like mm. she was like the the object, the prize, the kind of thing that had to be protected from these people. And there was that kind of, it has that, and I'm sure that was deliberate again from Wells to kind of make. Well, they also, the they, they start her story. So it's a bit more farcical a little bit almost like yeah. it's, it's played not for laughs but it's definitely lighter and then then as it progresses it gets yeah know, and but i think it's really subtle because although it's light it's really you know that would be really intimidating and the stuff that happens to her yeah yeah and just like little you know and it's sort of quite subtle but it's always her that's the that's the in between you know that they're trying to get to him so they go through her it's always I thought that was really interesting. Um, And it obviously paints the Mexican, the Grandi family as, you know, as really awful because they're going through this quote unquote defenseless woman instead of going straight to to the problem or the man that is in in charge of the situation that, you know, um, Vargas. It's like they're saying that he's so uncorruptible. And he's so straight that they they can't do anything to him. Going directly mm. to him is is pointless. So they yeah they they use her to try and get to him. But I think what I love about when they first introduce her, and I guess throughout, is she's so strong. She is. She's yeah. so like yeah. She's she, very strong. She's so like uh, well not um, like like she's so forceful in the way she she speaks and the way she speaks to people and not and she's not taking any crap out of any mm. of the gangsters. She's yeah. finding it almost funny as well. Yeah. Like the weird thing with the hotel when the guys, sh- like they're trying to, they start trying to terrorise her. So they're, as she's changing, they're shining a torch you know, and stuff like that. And uh, she um, she unscrews the light bulb from the, the lamp and just chucks it. <laughs> but I thought it was really, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that bit. She doesn't even tell him that that's happened. No. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. She's and like, she's almost annoyed out. that he wants to know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and she's almost like, ah, it's just shit that you deal with being a woman when you dress in a place that doesn't have curtains. She's just like that dealing with <laughs> but it. Also, really. from a screenwriting point of view, it's also economic because you don't want to tell the audience what they've already seen as well. Do you mm. know what I mean? So mm. yeah, that yeah. as well. But she's not shrieking at the at yeah. the, the idea that anyone's terrorising her. She's not running to her cop boyfriend to fix it. Uh, mm-hmm. she's fine you know she's handling it like there's that, a reason stood there out a couple, to me. Like, yeah they were trying well, yeah, to make she, her quite strong in it because well, she, she decides not to go home she wants to stay yeah I mean? and he doesn't get a choice mm. yeah. Like, yeah like he doesn't have a say she's going with him so that's it yeah no i did i did like the character because of that and uh yeah yeah I thought she was she's definitely the focal point of like how they're trying to intimidate him through her yeah. Um, which, you know, obviously that's that's kind of trying to make the Mexicans look, uh, you know, even worse again, which I don't think was Wells's point of view. I think he's trying to show what, what people think in general, and that's kind of, you know, uh, the racism element to it. But, um, yeah, yeah I think it's kind of it. like everyone is bad in this, like mm-hmm. really as well. Like like the weird thing about the crime element in this at the end of the film, they show that like even though he was framing Sanchez, he was correct as yeah. well. Yeah, and it's and it is definitely saying that it, he like it's not trying to pretend that crime doesn't happen. It's just saying that like sometimes 
crime is really awful and the police are really awful. That's really mm. a, it, you know. So mm. I think it is trying to just frame the the um, the gangsters as awful as well, but also a bit bit not cartoonish, but a bit farcical. And he and I mean he was aware of this. The scene went when she's at the motel and they're slowly coming into her room. There's a lot of people coming into her room to to when they abduct her. Um, he was really concerned in the memo that the way they cut it made it look like it was farcical. It was it was like you're going to make people laugh at this because there's so many people coming in. Mm. I was um, actually terrified for. Yeah, him. I was. Yeah, yeah. I and found like it really looking quite at, shocking, especially the women being present. I was like, "What is going one on? One of them what is going parties. on? Yeah, yeah." And really apparently, the way they originally cut it was more like a clown car, you know, full of people, <laughs> just like, constantly coming in, through just the... constantly coming in. And he wrote really specific notes about the way he needed it to be cut, and you need to cut on these beats, cut away from the action, go away, come back to it. Uh, I want you need to be taking these low shots. You need to be kind of like and and be really careful with with what you show. One of his big issues that he wanted to show the night manager, who's a very weird character, yeah, um, wanted that's to strange. They wanted to have the night manager in it um to sh- turn off the music and they never had the music turned off in the original cut and he was really like no we need the music to go off at this point because that's what makes it terrifying mm. when he's right that guy became like the screen actors guild director or whatever like he, really he ran the sc- yeah the he ran the screen actors guild <laughs> that was a very strange character that was yeah yeah, it's a very much a case of like I, d- I can't remember what the acronym is, but like undiagnosed screen yes. disability, like or something like it's just okay. Yeah, he's got his doing. quirks that he you know he doesn't want to do anything outside of his job role. That's like you know he won't make a bed. He won't yeah, it's, yeah. I would say that like he's saying it over and over again, and he's clearly meant to be kind of we would say on the spectrum. Yeah. but yes, I yeah. don't think the film was sure about what spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just didn't really know what that was at the time. But yeah. was he trying to write just a geeky, nebbish, awkward kind of guy, or was he trying to write someone who, as you're saying, I think on he the was. Spectrum? I think he was trying to make someone who's vulnerable and has been, right. and has been kind of, um, not abused, but like taken advantage of by the gang, mm. and would yeah. be obvious on screen to be taken advantage of yeah. i think that's what it is like very I'm trying to be very obvious about it it's weird it's such so often we've ran into this really weird just element of putting in like like as you say needing a vulnerable person and making them have like some unknown mental illness well, there was one like, in the searches the one in like the rocking chair yeah the one in the search i was thinking of um spit on your grave as well same thing yes like, yes that was the one yeah. i was trying it was kind of comes into my head the one just, that they kind of she she hangs or whatever by the uh i don't really want to remember no. but yeah one with, <laughs> one with definite weird weird undiagnosed kind of disability or something mm. yeah it's interesting it was interesting that yeah shall we um go through the plot a little bit maybe sure is that, is that good maybe there's some stuff we haven't really mentioned even though we talked about a lot of it but there's a lot in this film but yeah, as we we say, you know, opens up with like the little memo thing saying that this is from that cut, and just that fantastic opening shot, mm. which I it took it knocked me back. I have to say, it knocked me back. I just didn't expect it to open up like that. And the way we see the bomb, we see the bomb being planted, and because it doesn't have like those credits over it, I didn't know when the I knew the bomb was going to go off. Yeah, I didn't know when. Like, mm. and 
I didn't I know at any point it can go off in that shot. I was like, is it going to go off now when it's parked at the crosswalk with all the people crossing in front of it and the camera's pulled out? Is that the moment we're going to see it blow up or is it going to be somewhere else? Like, I, It works so well. Even the girl in the car moaning about the ticking noise and she can hear as well at the border. Yeah, that was a bit... That was really uncomfortable. I was like, oh, gosh. And nobody's listening to her because she's, you know, just a striptease who he's driving around. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sweetheart, or something. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, no, I can hear ticking. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, my goodness. The thing that threw me the most was that Charlton Heston was taking his wife out for a chocolate soda, and I was like, what the fuck is a chocolate soda? (laughs) That's a good point. Apparently, it's chocolate syrup in Coca-Cola. It's apparently something. Apparently, it's going to be very nice. I'd I don't want one. It makes me think of like cream soda where they put ice cream, which I can kind of get on yeah. board with. I'm not sure about Coke float or something. Syrup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a root bit float. Yeah. 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 I can kind of get on board with that, but I'm not sure about chocolate syrup. And that's just I'll too far. Right. I'll try anything once. <laughs> I guess Coke is kind of a caramel flavour. Might, yeah. might taste like a Mars bar. Mm, <laughs> oh, well, actually, anyway. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the car goes up in smoke. <laughs> Yeah, the car blows up just off screen and as we cut back to... What I really loved as well, we're so used to that crane shot that when it cuts back, the the shot is really low. It's almost on the ground, Mm. you know, staring up at them, just showing, like, now it's mayhem. You know, now it's panic and mayhem and it's all gone wrong. And and, uh, Charlton Heston is kind of, like, wide-eyed and and worried and running about the place trying to fix what's happened. And uh, as soon as that, really is Janet Lee gets pushed away from Charlton and that's when they split really. They mm. do reconcile a couple of times, but the film is definitely obsessed with the idea that they're split for most of it and he's not present to kind of help her. And she kind of gets pushed away to kind of deal and meets up with the the guy that she nicknames Poncho from the mob. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit uh, is demeaning, isn't it? A bit demeaning. And <laughs> later on, Uncle Joe has a go at her for it and she doesn't really have anything to say for herself. She She's has like... this really long list of uh, abuse that she gives to Uncle Joe. Yes, Do you yes. remember that? I can't remember the line. But I can't remember the line. I wanted to write it down, was... but it was quite long, yeah. I mean, like was... lop, lop-eared mm. yeah, Caesar wannabe Caesar, or something. Caesar, what, yeah. Like, yeah. Something tiny Caesar or something. I mean, it was so abusive and he takes it quite well, I think. I was like, yeah. you know, mate, he's like a mob boss. <laughs> Well, it's, it's awkward because they're like, did they hurt you? No. Did they touch you? No. Did they say anything bad to you? No. It was just, just awkward. <laughs> yeah, it was so. It was even a little awkward to watch because as soon as his car blows goes off and she's pushed away, and then suddenly I'm like, well, what's going on with the car? And then Orson Welles comes out in his you know grotesque way, and then like, and then we're seeing Janet Lee with these characters that I'm like, well, I think they're a gang, but are they dangerous? Like they look yeah. a bit silly. She's called him a silly name. Uncle Joe is very silly. Like yeah. the scene when he loses his wig, and they keep going like. He's trying to be really angry with them, and the other other character in the mob keep going. Yeah, your rug, your rug fell off, your rug fell off, and and he's ignoring him saying that, and keeps talking over him and stuff. It's like by calling him uncle as well, kind of like D, kind of like I don't know, like makes makes it a bit softer, a little less threatening. Yeah, Mm. it's um, and like you kind of realise that he's not the mob boss anyway. It's his brother, and it's his brother who's going up in Mexico City for court and it's going to be Charlton Heston who needs to um, who's going to testify, testify yeah. against him and uh, they're trying to intimidate Charlton Heston not kill him but, 
I don't think they're trying to kill him because when they chucks it acid at him, Uncle Joe gets really mad. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. So about yeah, it, yeah. The, other, yeah, the other side. Of the, so the her, his brother's son, he's the one who throws the yeah. acid, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But going back to um, Heston and Wells's character, so obviously one's Mexican, one's American, but they're each other's equal, aren't they? On the opposite side of the border, but one's straight, and obviously the other one is. Yeah, he's like. Yeah, they both run their districts either side of the border. Um, weird enough, they. Uh, this seems. But they're both stars, aren't they? They're yeah, both... they are. They're both yeah. celebrities. That's that's really yeah. They make that quite clear at the beginning, actually. Well, celebrities is for police, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think they call him a police celebrity. I think they yeah, even they say just, that. About it's him. a bit like um, what's that film uh, with Guy Pearce? Mm. I and don't know. Kevin Spacey's in it, unfortunately, and he's like the star police officer. That's kind oh, of... LA Confidential. Yeah, it's got it's got yeah. a lot of LA Confidential in. Well, yeah, I think because that's sort of like that. bent coppers yeah. and star coppers and blah 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 blah. I guess you can imagine at this time they don't show it in this, but this might be a time when film crews are shoving cameras in cops' faces. Yeah, and yeah. maybe the detectives' faces and stuff bad like that. Boys, they might bad be bad boys. <laughs> yeah, actually, not <laughs> quite in that way. <laughs> but I can imagine that, like, this will be a time period you might start hearing about that. And I I think Orson Welles does, because a lot of positions in America are elections, like police chiefs are from elections. And yeah, I think Orson yeah. Welles does yeah. talk about the fact that he needs to fight elections as well. So, which is quite an interesting little element to that as well. Um. As soon as they meet there, they start fighting about jurisdiction and start kind of you know, cockwaving about who's got the most like power here and stuff and, and why are you on my side of the board and why are you not and where well, the bomb came from my side and things. like It's mm. it's a good little kind of um, push and tug between like the two elements of this. Yeah, and we learn about the intuition thing at that point, don't we? Yes, yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, his leg. He, 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 knows, he knows it was the Grandy family because of his leg. Well, yeah, that yeah. comes up later on, though, doesn't it? When he's like, he, his partner's like, has got the wire on him, and he's like, he knows, he knows that Charlton Heston's around because he feels the twinge in his leg again. Doesn't in it? His yeah. leg, yeah. yeah, that's his intuition playing up. Which we end up finding out he's good. The intuition's right. <laughs> yeah, just, it's, it's, pretty it's just the way he goes about it. It's just the way <laughs> it goes about it. Yeah. Yeah. So then, like, yeah. So we start seeing the tension between them already, really, between the two things, and how Wells has already kind of got a suspect in mind he always feels like he already knows what's going on he's kind of hobbling around the border town looking for a suspect mm. and um at, at one point um uh zaza kabor's in this film and i'm not sure which it's point because I, I think she's she was dating the producer or something like that Isn't okay she in the um the sort of dancing club the strip tease club by the stairs that they took the she's very blonde and she's at the bottom of the stairs and they Talk to her for a little bit. I think um, so. Is that, I'm right that it's this point when he's going around the different clubs that yeah. she's one of the people he talks to. Okay, because eventually after talking to him, he bumps into his um, his friend Tonya, who runs mm-hmm. like a brothel and bar with a player piano in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Marlene Dietrich. There's she doesn't this, recognize that, him though. <laughs> well, it's brilliant. Like it, <laughs> there's definitely been a lot of like romance between them in the past their exes or something there's there's something to that relationship that he maybe fucked it up at some point because of the drink it's in pl- mm. like that he couldn't get off it she tells him that you need to lay off the kind of the uh the candy bars <laughs> and he's like well i replaced the you know i replaced my booze with the candy bars so it's not 
it's just the candy bar's fault. It was the booze before he did, it as The way well. he eats that chocolate bar, though, it is like <laughs> right close to his face, and he's like... Yeah. Mmm, it's amazing. And just this... I That first thing when he meets... The, I can see why he wanted Marla Dietrich in this. like Because that scene, like humbles him, like humanizes him instantly in a way that I was not expecting this film to do um, to this character straight off. After introducing him as such like a kind of horrid guy, and then to see this like, you know, he's an alcoholic. He's struggled with it for ages. He's clearly got a connection with this brothel owner, but we're not oh. totally sure what it is. Like, there's a lot of like regret and loss in that. So am I reading out it badly when I say that she doesn't recognize him, or is it more like she just doesn't recognize the man he is now to the, re- the man he used to be? I think something? that's is what that it more is. what it is? It's just me. Yeah. yeah, and I think it, it's it's a it's a big you let yourself go as well. It's meant yeah. to be as well. Like you look terrible. You she know? just puts him in his place, isn't she? She has yeah. a real yeah. power over him, and I think oh, she's I just love her. But like the way she just looks at him and he's he's he instantly goes from being this big grandiose very yes. intimidating man and she just within you know one line or a look at him and he's he's sort of oh i wish i was i wish i was here getting fat on your chili you know yeah yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she's like it might be too hot yeah, for you. it's too hot for you love you know like <laughs> she just straight away puts him in his place and i think that's and she has that sort of aura doesn't she Marlena dietrich so yeah. It's not a huge yeah. role for her either, you know. No. But again, it's uh, she's captivating. Just she's one of those actors who just just can't take your eyes off her, and that's almost what it needed for you to actually think, yeah, he he would be cow sort of cowed by her, you know. She would be yeah. able to control him. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. And it yeah. just I gave so you- much depth to him yeah. instantly. It's yeah. like, well, actually, people like. This person's mm. friendly to him. He likes him. Like, like yeah. that's oh, yeah. that's yeah. interesting. That's instantly mm. interesting in the script. Like, um, and to uh, I, Marla Dietrich is like an icon. Like, and and it was it was so great seeing her in this. I thought she mm. just she, as you say owns the screen with Welsh. They needed someone like that to do that. Mm. And instantly we see that like this is like another crane shot as well. They they use this crane coming out of the thing, and this is the bit with the man in the shadow shining a torch on Lee. As she's changing in the hotel, I was going to say one thing that made me think about this: Janet Lee should just stop going to hotels in, the, in her career. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like two twice this happens, and a couple of years later, Janet it goes very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so she, but yeah, she unscrews the light bulb, chucks it, and he comes back, and we get this great sign. This is the bit where the Mexican boss is like. His wig's fallen off, and his his brother keeps yelling at him, and they're running through the streets, and and um, meanwhile Quinlan has like a lead about dynamite. He gets obsessed with like where the dynamite comes from, so mm. like uh, like Vargas wants to run off and follow Quinlan, and Lee's like, "You are not going anywhere without me," because they're meant to be on their honeymoon, and they're moaning that the he goes, "You took um, on my honeymoon. You took me to the shitty hotel in this like border town, and we want to be going somewhere nice and things." Um, and you're not just leaving me anywhere. So she jumps in as well, and they eventually get dropped. Off. She gets dropped off at a very remote motel mm. um, with the w- weird nervous night manager. And um, and meanwhile, Vargas goes off to meet up with Quinlan. But don't forget though that um, Heston's—he's driving her to the hotel originally, and then he's—he's he's then like halfway there. He's met with Orson Welles and his crew. 
and they're like, come yeah. with us. My partner will take you to the hotel. He takes the hotel, but he's being followed, isn't he, by the uncle? By Uncle Joe, uncle yeah. Because yeah, he still thinks it's um, Charlton Heston, doesn't he? So he's... Yeah. But then his partner, like, collars him. Weirdly enough, they had, in the re-edit, they had um, Charlton Heston take her to the hotel, and they had they inserted and reshot scenes with them, like a bit of kind of a... He desc- I don't know what the shot was, but they described it as like a love scene. It wasn't obviously sex, but I think it was just like some intimate scene between them mm-hmm. to show that they're kind of like a couple. And Wells really, reje- really, really goes against this in the edit in the fact that he's saying like, by putting this safe scene in before the hotel um, kind of dilutes the fact that they should be separated, that, that, we don't, that they are both alone in their own places and um, kind of dilutes the kind of the weirdness of the motel if he drives her there, basically. Which I thought was quite interesting, mm. like, change mm. and stuff. But they were clearly worried that the film wasn't playing enough on them as a kind of romantic lead, whereas the poster's showing them as a romantic lead, Oh, yeah. Basically. Like, the poster uh, does not represent the film at all. Not at all. No. Yeah, when you see the poster, you're like, um, that's not what it's about. Like, no. genuinely. Like, he's got her in the arms, like it's, like, Gone with the Wind or something in there. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah, like Orson Welles in the background does not look like his character at all. No, yeah. and yeah, they were clearly worried that they got they cast these two like dramatic leads to be like a screen couple, and they're not in this film. You know, they they the whole point of it is that separation, and the and the separation of that is the terror. You know, and that's what Orson's going for. But it's clearly the studio didn't like that at all, and I can see why they didn't if that's what they had in mind. Um, well, there's a great bit here that plays to that really, really good. So we we we've had the bit where like they're in Sanchez's house and they're like, they're interrogating him and, and uh, Quinlan's getting very angry because everyone's speaking Spanish. Like he, he yells at someone to translate and the guy's like, he just told me like, go get some water or something. I think it was like, um, and uh, Vargas kind of storms out of that, that house and goes across the road to use a phone to call Janet to call, uh, I can't remember her character's name. It doesn't get like, but Susan? call Janet Lee. Susan. Susan. Thank you. I yeah. So, yeah. And uh, in this scene, there's a blind woman who runs the shop. And uh, so she gives him the phone and just sits there mm-hmm. and is constantly at the forefront of the screen when Vargas is talking. Yeah, that was interesting. And, uh, and, they, and Universal cut that. She, they cut the blind woman from the shop, basically. And to quote, I'll just quote, it's quite a long one, but I'll quote Wells again. Um, he says, in the scene in the blind woman's shop, I note with distress that the shot of Vargas at the telephone has been blown up in such a way to eliminate the blind woman in the foreground. She is not there by accident. Her presence embarrasses <laughs> Vargas and inhibits his phone call with Susan. This provides a weird, curious note of mine attention, which will be missed if we don't have mm. it. Susan is the sh- Susan's in the strange motel speaking with a drowsy sexiness to her husband in the even more strange shop of the blind. His discomfort at the quiet, oddly attentive figure of the blind woman. These elements are rather carefully balanced as a plan. It seems a shame to disrupt this simply because it struck someone that the woman sitting there in the edit was rather peculiar. It was meant to be peculiar. Mm. If the dialogue between Susan and Mike was more significant, if a vital plot point has been established, then of course the blind woman would be weird. But as this, it lends a special dimension to a scene, which on the face of it advances our story not at all, but must be perfectly routine. So what he's saying is basically, this is the last time they speak. 
And because the blind woman's there, Vargas doesn't talk to her properly. Mm. He dismisses her. He barely responds to her. She's being kind of little sexy and she's being like quite loving. They're meant to be on their honeymoon. And he responds coldly. He responds just as this straight cop. Mm. He, he barely kind of talks to her. And, and we see it's because, it's not because he doesn't love her. It's because he's in a weird position, but she doesn't know that. So, like, it's making her terror at being left alone at this motel more by having Vargas respond to her so weirdly. Yeah, I agree with that. Because uh, at first I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure of what the significance of her being blind was. But I think maybe it's suggesting that she's listening even more closely. Um, yes, more attentive he, than you think she would yeah, be, I think. So, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think that's probably he's probably aware of that and then that embarrassment or whatever so it's like who knows who will say what on this like this little strip of this road do you know what i mean this like street yeah. who's gonna say yeah. what to whoever mm. i think it's the fact that she like if she wasn't blind she might have walked away yeah but because she's blind she just sits there yeah. and it feels like someone listening into your conversation yeah. really um, and it's just it makes him uncomfortable, and, and it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It does. Sorry, I was just thinking. There's um, isn't in that shot? Isn't the sergeant outside as well? Can't we see? I'm just trying. There was definitely a, a character outside, so it felt like you, there was somebody. You see in the car house. returning. You see the. You, you see Orson Welles's partner returning. Yeah. I think with with um, Orson Welles's not Orson, Charlton Heston's car. I think. Yeah. Yes, you see that it's the DA, isn't it? Ah, that's there's, there's quite a few characters in this, yeah. but I think it's the DA who drives Lee to the motel, then comes back with Uncle Joe and takes Uncle Joe into the apartment mm. as well. Yeah. And and that's when Uncle Joe's like, yeah, uh, like I was following it because I thought it was Vargas and Vargas is testifying my brother, so I'm trying to make sure he's okay. You know, I'm following to make sure nothing trouble happens because I need him to testify is what Uncle Joe's like pretending yeah it's going on before all this though back in the other house like charlton heston is like in the bathroom isn't he and he finds like a yeah. shoe box and it's empty he knocks it off the shelf yeah. accident, doesn't he yeah yeah and then when he comes it's back completely empty, yeah. oh guess what's found in the <laughs> shoe box <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh yes yeah, so yeah yeah so he opens a shoe like it's i love the way these things were shot it's just totally on like the face of vargas or the face of quinlan and you hear like the other cops oh, in the yeah. house rummaging around and bringing stuff to them. And uh, yeah, so they find them. Um, Quinlan comes back into the room and says, look, I did a search, but my leg plays me up. I'm not very good at searching. Can you go search instead? And that's to his partner, Menzies. Mm. Menzies? Yeah, it? Menzies. And yeah, he goes off and comes back with, there's, there's a bunch of dynamite in the shoebox. <laughs> like, and that point that's kind of sparks Vargas is kind of he knows there was no dynamite in that box he goes okay this has been planted but why has it been planted and can we prove it's been planted by Quinlan so that's when he kind of talks to the DA in the in the weird car chase thing the weird kind of frantic car bit about let's go to Quinlan's ranch and see what we can find there Mm. and they find out that um Quinlan has recently purchased a bunch of dynamite and that's why he was so obsessed with the idea that this bomb was dynamite even having no evidence of it uh that it must have come from this quarry it must have come when one of the workers were there who robbed it it must be sanchez and and he just put all this in his head together and then made the evidence fit what he thought was going on mm. and that's when we got we got the weird kind of the story kind of breaks at this point really we're no longer investigating the bombing at all that goes away at this point now we're investigating what Vargas is looking at Quinlan 
and Quinlan trying to kind of frame Vargas as well, which is a big switch in the kind of stories happening. Uh, what is happening with Lee at this point is that it's escalating this kind of gangs, these like kind of 1950s greasers, aren't mm. they all keep turning up to this motel? There's just one thing I want to point out, though, sorry to interrupt. But, you know, back in the house when they find the dynamite, Chant Heston's happy to light up a cigarette right next to the dynamite. (laughs) Don't think that was a very good idea. I didn't notice that. Oh, that's so funny. I wonder if that shows his comfortability being around it and stuff. Maybe. As well. Uh, Yeah, so Quinlan, yeah, so all these people are turning up um, and uh, at, at, like, the motel and things are escalating there. Um, Meanwhile, Quinlan almost you see him on the spot do it he just develops a story about what's going on with Vargas he goes he's a drug addict Mm. him and his wife are drug addicts they've all been going like doing loads of drugs and that's why they're in that weird shitty hotel Mm. in in the border town as well um you you will go we'll go find evidence that he's a drug addict and meanwhile Quinn Vargas has gone off to go and find evidence that Quinlan has been framing every single conviction that he's ever brought forward so you get this kind of three different levels. Orson's kind of working with Uncle Joe. You get Lee at the apartment, at the motel, and you get, like, the records office with Vargas as well. Mm-hmm. So kind of really separating them all out. Um, which, honestly, at this point, I didn't know where this was all going. Yeah. I think, you, you know, yeah. you, at this point, you get the feeling, though, that Orson Welles' partner knows something's not right. He's kind of not at ease with... Mm. Like, you know. they they run out of little bit excuses for him don't they yeah yeah and is this when he tells him the story about he took a bullet for me mm-hmm. at this point mm-hmm. and um and again it's that kind of look he is a good guy look he did this it's that defensive sort of thing because he's he's already starting to see as you say ollie like he's starting to see that something's not quite right with how he's behaving and um, the pressures as well build up to him drinking again as well. He's sitting in that weird bar with Uncle Joe and Joe pours him a whiskey and he's drunk it. And then when he offers him another drink, uh, Quinlan's like, I don't drink. And then realise that he's already off the wagon. Mm-hmm. After, I think it's say like 12 years he didn't drink for. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that long. Na- I think it's a lot less. But um, I can't remember. I, th- I got 12 written here. I thought it was, it might be I thought it was only there, three but... or four. It wasn't that long, I don't think. But anyway... But yeah, like he's he's back on the wagon. He's drinking. He's getting more and more desperate. And there's some great drunk acting by by Orson at these points when they're all this, they're all in the room accusing him, and he's absolutely wasted. <laughs> and uh, reminds me of that champagne advert that I never get out of my head. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, Natalie, I haven't. Okay. One or two, take two. Ah, the French champagne. Has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul um, Masson. Yes, yeah, so the harassment of Lee kind of escalates to a point where, like, um, all the gang members storm into her room. It's not especially clear what happens here. And it, later on, they do actually qualify that nothing happened, mm. which is quite interesting. Mm. Uh, but they definitely leave it to you that it seems like it's going to be some sort of gang rape yeah. or something of her. It, it was yeah, quite they shocking. Spread her legs, don't they? Also, what they say, grab yeah, her legs or spread grab her legs, I think is the line. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's really definitely meant up. to be quite frightening, isn't it? And yeah. I, like, I and genuinely it felt it. I was like, I, and then I yeah. thought, is this just my 
is this just my head going to a really dark place? But I did think it was like mm. a, a rape thing. Because one of the one of the women said in the thing, said, I want to watch. And you think, well, there's got to be something to watch then. What are they, <laughs> what's she going to watch? Like, and But obviously later on we find out, as you say, that they were just, I think they were blowing smoke on her or something. Like they weren't actually they, using the proper They stuff. did inject her, didn't they? But it was with the truth, you know. Like yeah, kind of, like uh, a fake sodium pentanol i think is what they yeah because vargas says like look it's probably not heroin it's probably something just appears like that when you do the testing or Mm. something um but yeah like they kind of frame the room up they they i think they're meant to pour loads of alcohol down her throat as well um and um they cover her in booze as well and they cover the clothes and the room in booze they there's a like little ends of reefers around the room (laughs) yeah Yeah. those those crazy reefer parties yeah, they are, because there's a line later with Uncle Joe's like, you didn't smoke any of this, did you? <laughs> like, and they're like, no, 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 we don't touch the stuff. Somehow they blew it on her, though. I don't know how that works. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. They, they so they it smelled like it or something. But yeah, they're framing her like to be a drug addict, which is Quinlan's decided she is, so they have to make it happen. Um, and at this point you know that cuts away from that as you say really effective cut when you don't know what's happening mm. with, with janet lee uh vargas then after finding tons of evidence that he's been framing people for years heads back to the motel only to be told that his wife's no longer there and there was a terrible event happened at cabin seven um which is quite weird <laughs> uh his gun's also gone as well and uh um but um the the guy at the bar sorry the guy at the hotel then tells Vargas that she's at Uncle Joe's bar back in town so he races off there uh, this scene I thought was spectacular so this was when um she's passed out in one of the upper rooms at the bar and Uncle Joe's in the room and Quinlan turns up and you just and like the whole thing is so menacing mm. like, so menacing mm. with the, the light, light just constantly flickering and swinging and going dark all the time um Quinlan has you find out that nothing actually happened to Lee she hasn't like they just drugged her or something um, knocked her out or something they say Um, and Quinlan turns up incredibly drunk and Uncle Joe thinks that he's come to kill Lee I think to kill Susan Um, but instead he kind of locks the door and kills Uncle Joe in a scene that's like so much full of so much like anger he's like so huge he's so big and domineering he's like the kingpin you know like from marvel like just this huge guy in a suit like chucking uncle joe around this room like smashing his head through windows and and um mm. eventually just strangling her strangling him with a bit of look like a bit of her fabric or something like a little bit of fabric or something just twisting it and just strangling it and strangling the life out of him, him bit of linen thing wasn't it yeah but i like i like i like the foreshadowing because like earlier on he tells his um his partner like you know the best way to kill someone is strangulation or whatever because mm. it, you know it leaves it's no fingerprints no traces yeah and it's i just he at this point turned into such like a terrifying figure in the film he was suddenly so powerful not just like in ego but powerful physically um and as I said, he just me with a kingpin for Marvel. Yeah, so just bulging like this eyes. huge guy in a suit. Yeah. Mm. Strangling life. Huge, at this isn't guy. He? he made Uncle Joe look tiny. Tiny, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you're like, that's a mob boss. And yet he's 
he's just like you say like chucking him around and he just his clothes ripped very easily <laughs> yeah. yeah i love how high up uncle joe's trousers were as well <laughs> and oh, the, I music, the music here is that this latin mambo beat that just keeps getting more and more intense as the scene goes on um I just loved it. I just thought that was such a wild scene and so scary and stuff like that. Like, mm. was that music within the film itself? Is that like playing in the bar? Yeah, it's, yeah I think it's, it's just meant to be the sound. I mean, that's of the pretty kind much the whole the film, town. isn't it? It's, there's not yeah. much score, really. I don't think. No, not really. Not in that way, anyway. Like, it's all to do with the, the town and the city mm-hmm. they're in, and the sound of all the bars and all the music and of Mexico and stuff. Like, mm. um, and then like to go for what I loved was to go from this scene where like. You see, like, you know, Janet Lee wakes up and sees Uncle Eyes, Uncle Joe's eyes bulging out of them. Um, they look like they're painted on his eyelids, though. <laughs> they look really weird. Crazy. I tried to pause like, it properly. Yeah. Um, and we just, that swinging light. We, they cut from that and she runs out to the balcony and screams. And, like, that's when the Vice Squad pick her up because she's high, you know, and they, they arrest her. And Charlton Heston comes into town. And the way Charlton Heston bursts into this bar (laughs) and like with his shirt ripped and starts beating the crap out of all these um, uh, mobsters and stuff like that and chucking the bar around himself, I was just like, the actual bar, this is Heston in his prime. Looks like it's made out of like cardboard, the way that thing bounces around and flips over. Yeah, just like like yeah, it, everything looks so solid and like such a an, an ideal place. And as soon as John Heston comes in, he can just <laughs> break everything apart and chuck everything through. Like, <laughs> and he picks somebody up and yeah, like, yeah, carries him with one hand for <laughs> yeah. ages. I was like, my well, goodness, someone, this is someone jumps on his back combat. and then he somehow like throws them on the table in the same move. It's amazing. <laughs> he is amazing. It's that kind of hero bit, isn't it, for him? I suppose that they've. You know, probably always had in mind for him to have something like that as a, as the leading guy. So but it, it, hero moment. You it had didn't to have feel heroic fights. to me as well. It felt terrifying in the same way. Yeah, like yeah. it's the same way we just watched Orson be terrifying. Really, they felt yeah, like it felt the same thing to me almost. I wouldn't be surprised though if that was a studio note. You got to have a fist fight in like a lot of films back then. Had to have fist fights in. Otherwise, what's the point in making a film? <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it did seem quite again like quite shocking because he'd gone from being really uh straight laced yes. really, you know, yeah. yeah, and then it's just like he's just flipped and gone, yeah. gone mad all and... this time this was hiding under the surface yeah I love how john heston yeah. talks as well he doesn't like his teeth don't move they just stay in the same like clenched <laughs> together and he just talks through <laughs> his teeth all the time how well do you know Charlton? I have to say, like, outside of Planet of the Apes, not that familiar uh, with Charlton Hester's Planet answer, of the Apes like. is cameo in Wayne's World. Um, <laughs> that's about it. Uh, Ten Commandments. Which ben is, Hur? He's yeah, Ben Hur, yeah. Ben Hur, wasn't he? Yeah, Ben Hur's Yeah, the I remember one, him really. from that. He's um, yeah. interesting. He's like, I equate him a lot to kind of John Wayne, obviously, the way we watched before, mm, yeah. similar kind of guy, really. Um, Little, probably a little better than Wayne, <laughs> just like naturalistic. Oh, in acting, acting you mean? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, a yeah. little bit. I think so. It's still, it's still like an old timey kind of screen presence. I think with him, he's like old timey kind of acting, really. But he's, mm. he's, but like Wayne, he's got his own way of speaking, his own cadence. Yeah, that's kind of um, like his own thing that kind of sets him apart from just being like an. Even though he's probably not the greatest actor, it kind of gives him that star quality. That's just yes. That's just yeah. Art, that's just different. 
And what was great about this film, and I think it's that's totally awesome, is that like the sound of all the dialogue was like a bit like theatre. I guess it was like radio because where it came from. As in, everyone's talking over each Mm. other, like lines kind of merge into each other. Mm. What they're saying, like there's no like it's not just stop start with the dialogue. And he manages to get Heston into that flow as well, where every the soundscape of people talking all at once and and not finishing sentences, speaking Spanish, and then he's like in English, and then Charlton Heston's like trying to like. um, you know, speak for them and stuff like that. And he's speaking Spanish, although I don't even know if he's speaking Spanish or just gibberish. Sure, sure. But it was interesting. Like, it gave the film this air of like uncertainty to me, and like, like I can see why maybe if a studio watched this in the fifties and went, well, the people, the audience aren't going to know what's going on. Everything's happening. It's just a at bit once. ahead of its, its time like in terms of that. Confusing. It's just a bit yeah. more modern and. Um, but I think that really helps with the flow of the film. It kind of doesn't make it stilted. Like we were watching the searches the other week and like, mm. you know, I was saying that scene in the cab in the opening and it was just the dialogue mm. was so stilted and back and forth. And I was like, everybody's like line reading, give the pace of the film. This just had like a, a bit more oomph to it. Yeah, it did. It did. Absolutely. Mm. And everything starts ramping up now. So we get Varga goes back to the um, lockup and finds Lee barely conscious um, Menzies reveals to Vargas that Quinlan's cane was at the murder scene, so Quinlan was there, which is a very stupid thing for him to leave there. Do you think he's, he's getting very a bit sloppier though? Like that's yeah, yes. totally. You can see his acting. Yeah, because he's drunk. Because obviously he's drunk. He's, but he's an alcoholic. He's drunk. Again, yeah, but you can see yeah. his like he's he he's visibly like decaying mm. on screen almost from mm. the first point to now. It's really impressive, impressive like feat really. Uh, and um, he's Vargas is like, sorry, Quinlan's kind of lost all his, as we say, lost all his composure. Um, Menzies is saying that Quinlan's bent, but he still respects him as well, which is a big thing. Like, and we cut to um Quinlan at Tanya's brothel now, um, where he's um he's just sitting in that bar with the player play piano playing really loud, um, just drinking really. He um stumbles over to Tanya and demands to know his future with the tarot cards and she's like you haven't got a future which is like harsh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and they want to kind of pull him outside to speak to him to get him on tape to admitting to all the kind of framing and stuff like that with this giant microphone and giant sound recording thing which I just loved I can't believe that's the way police used to work yeah, and he's uh, going to keep shooting into the frequency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, around. keep tuning in and chasing them down the street. Do you know what? I was quite impressed that he had something that was so mobile. Like, I thought, True. I thought, I wonder if they would even have anything like that back then. But obviously, they do, and they were he was able to run around the street with it. But yeah, and it's a quite it's quite a good little incident here with Tanya in the brothel as well. Like um, in the studio version, they cut it completely different. But um, when he leaves, he looks up to her and misses her gaze. And then when he turns to walk out, that's when she looks up and sees him. Uh, And so they both look to each other, but they both miss each other's gaze at the wrong time. In the studio version, they cut it completely different. They had him looking directly at each other. They cut it so, like, their gaze meets one last time. And Awesome was furious about this. Like, he's like, that's not the point <laughs> the point is like it's about loss of these two not like if they look at each other that's that's not gonna work like mm. and I, I love that as like that's such a minor edit 
really in the grand scheme of things but so big but to the film they're trying to tell it's massive and yeah mm. like you know the studios are just cutting it to the beats of what every other film does yeah. that's not what this yeah. film yeah. is trying to be do you know what I mean it's like trying to put a, a round object through a square hole do you know what I mean sure. it's kind of like yeah. it's trying to yeah. force something to be something it's not I mean, as you say, they like they had this. It was a police picture, you know. That's what it is, and that's what they expected. And what they got out of it was this quite modern noir, really. That I think was very modern for the fifties as well. Uh, eventually, Menzies goes in. They get Quinlan out of the the um the brothel, and they start walking through this kind of landscape with these oil fields and stuff like that, like and and bridges and things. Um, eventually, he on it's so good with like uh, John Heston diving into the river to get in signal and stuff like that still uh, but like uh, eventually like he emits on um, on the microphone that he uh, you know he'd been framing people but it was okay because he knew they were all guilty he was just making sure like you know he was getting crooks mm. um, but when he's talking the echo of the radio is bouncing off this giant bridge and you can hear the echo coming back and that's when he realises Vargas is around or he gets the twinging in his knee, I think he says. Um, so, like, uh, when he realises, you know, he knows Menzies is recording him, they know they're framing him, he starts to panic and he shoots uh, Menzies with Vargas's gun, the one that disappeared from the motel, just as, like, uh, just as Vargas gets up there. And I just love this ending. Mm, it's great. Um, it looks fantastic as well. The bridge yeah. and then the kind of the sides of the bridge where it's all like there's just heaps of like broken chairs, settees, yeah. or whatever kind of by the riverside. Yeah, yeah. and uh, like looking at see, looking down and seeing all that blood on like um, Quinlan's hand kind of sends him into like a shock almost, uh, and you get that single tear roll down his cheek as well um vargas immensely goes like you know you're under arrest you're gonna you know we got it all on tape we're gonna uh, get this and quinlan's not bothered it's i love it like quinlan's like yeah. they'll believe me like it, he was shot with your gun i could shoot you now like and and yeah. i'll keep going you know I'll, I, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you've got i'm in charge here which i was like it, it it really did twist me. I was like, as soon as he shot like Menzies, I was like, well, that's the end of the film. And then I was like, well, no, oh, he, shit. he's got away with it so far. Yeah, he'll keep getting away with it. I was like, this it's is that arrogance, isn't it? He's so confident that he's untouchable. Yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah. It's, it, I, I I agreed. I thought it was going to end there. I thought it was going to sort of give up, but he's yeah, not. It Again, another up. interesting yeah. twist because he doesn't give up. He's he's quite happy to keep going with this. It's well, it's just, like, did we miss yeah. talking about that scene where he threw his badge on the table and was like, "I quit." And then, oh yes. And then yeah. he kind of he's playing it really, isn't he? And then he's like. He knows they won't let him quit. Exactly, yeah. yeah, they all buckle to him, don't they? He's so dramatic in that. I think somebody dares suggest that he, you know, might be a little bit out of line there, and and he throws down his badge, and it's so dramatic, and they all they all run to him, don't they? Like you can't quit, you can't. Yeah, because they're all on he, uh, Heston's side, and then all of a sudden they're just all one by one, yeah. just yeah. kind of flip flop. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. just after that as well. I don't think we mentioned it. That he talks about his dead wife as well. Yeah, that's what he's saying about the strangling and like how she died, and that's that's like, I think. That's where I got the 12 years from, maybe. 12, that's when she died, and he's not been able to get 
past it. Like but that's obviously his obsession the root of his racism as well, because he but, yeah, yeah, he says it was an immigrant, yeah. and he says it was yeah. so strangling, and he knows who it was, but he can't prove it or something like that. And it just seems like this has corrupted him for the rest of his life. He'll never get over it. It's probably what stopped him going with Tanya at the brothel or something like that. Like his just obsession and but rage. But it's also like so everybody though. he knows who's guilty in his gut, he has to find a way now to just to to sort it out. Sort yeah, get rid of them. Mm. yeah. Um, but yeah, so the twist at the end is uh, the the Menzies pops up and shoots um, Quinlan in the back. Um, which completely derails Quinlan's like a uh, like like a uh, you know like a uh, plan he was all putting together, um, and he st- he starts stumbling around this riverbank, and there's such like a a great few manic cuts. This is in the memo as well that he was really disappointed that they 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 um edited it really slowly, and it's just these series of manic cuts that he looks at the blood in his hand, he looks up and sees the dripping of the blood from Menzies he he goes to back away and he falls over all that kind of trash on the river heap and stuff like that uh as he falls over it's echoed by a click from the radio as well um and it cuts the radio really briefly so it was like that was awesome that's awesome was saying that's like him saying that it was the radio that tripped him basically um and he falls into the river and kind of starts bobbing away like dead I love the line uh, just he a, says to his friend, though his dead friend. Yes. He's like, "That's the second bullet I've, I took for you, or something like that." I took for you, yeah. Yeah, that's I, yeah. That's the second bullet bullet I stopped for you. That's yeah, it. and he laments to himself just before, like, like he's thinking about the end of his career. And as Tanya runs back, um, I I love how she goes like, um, "Where well, you going to get him out of there?" And the the other the DA's like, "Yeah, yeah someone will clear up." Like it's already <laughs> like it's finished mm. yeah. like it's sad it's not even like a grand exit it's he's just bobbing face down in a dirty river and um i love marlon dietrich's final line it's like um hank was a great detective and a low and a lonely cop a lowly cop mm. um he was a he was a some kind of man um what does it matter what you say about people and just says adios oh, like brilliant and just so brilliant. like so just all just full full with that regret and, and like you don't get shit dialogue like that in films like... where they kind of they poetically sum up the kind of the <laughs> character in like you just don't get that no get it, I thought it was a brilliant brilliant last line yeah absolutely wonderful and she delivers it so so perfectly yes yeah. like oh, and yeah. it's so full of that tinge of regret of what could have been of mm. what could have made his life better and hers but also that kind of just hardness of the reality that oh well we're moving on like that's the end of that like and yeah. and i just that's this film was really good <laughs> like this that's what we're saying <laughs> and what we're saying is it was really good, good. yeah I was almost, I don't want to say I'm surprised by it, but I kind of mean that. I always approach Wells' films with, like, I don't think this one's going to be good because he's got a weird reputation. And I said this with the one we recorded with Brandon, is that, like, for me, Wells was, like, a bit of a laughable figure growing up. Yeah. He was, yeah, like, a cartoon character who showed up in, like, the Animaniacs. Well, it didn't help, yeah, really, then he like, has that cameo in Edward and stuff like that. And, I yeah, mean, I know it's like, not him in Edward, but, like... yeah. I think it's even the voice of Pinky or the brain in Edward. Edward, I think it is, yeah. Because obviously Brain was based on him. Yeah. And it's like 
that's kind of who I thought Wells was. And one of the things about this series, or at least actually the podcast we're doing, is every time I come back and look at Wells, we're like, God, this guy was um really, really good. Like, really good. He did know yeah, what he was doing. Definitely, definitely. He's a bit of a genius, really, when you think, uh, especially thinking of the time and and the environment that he was in, you know, in Hollywood. And I know, obviously, he did a lot of work in Europe and he's Shakespearean and mm. stuff like that. So he's got those influences. And I think that's where the character development probably comes from. But you just think he's so ahead of his time. And yeah. It, yeah. I wish, yeah, I still wish we got to see him in June. Do you remember he was meant to be in Hadavarsky's June? Oh, God, and like he no, demanded that, that he have a chef on site the whole time that they filmed, <laughs> and it was, oh, the designs for his character looked insane. I just, oh, I just wish we could have seen that. It, and I think it was, um, I can't remember where I read this. It's in my head, so I might get this a little bit wrong. It might be Roger Ebert who said it. Egbert. Um, Ebert. Uh, Ebert. God, I always do that to him. Egbert. Sorry, Roger. Ebert. <laughs> Egbert. Um, that he basically, like, this is. A surprisingly autobiographical film is the way he described it about Wells and he th- and I think I said this earlier but it's like there's a lot of Wells in this character even though he's obviously blowing it up as like a monstrous character there's a lot about him as a difficult person and a very rigid person in his own morales like he doesn't like he won't play by your game and kind of maybe looking about the fact that his career has suffered for Hollywood because of that because he fights for every film, he fights for every edit. He doesn't get along with the kind of higher ups and stuff like that. That he's this like difficult figure to work with. You can see it coming out in his character in this. May possibly, you know, it's something to think about. Yeah, but it's especially like, with it because he's the director. Every film is like is about the director, essentially. Really, yeah, sure. Yeah, and exactly. So you know, it's that's you know. Not every film's autobiographical, but every film, I especially hope- when you're dealing with a character like Orson Welles, though, and especially with a script that he took away and just completely rewrote. Like, this is not a Charlton Heston film, it's an Orson Welles film. Like, mm. he, like he should be billed first, really. That's that's the way the film plays out. That said, I hope the director of a Serbian film is not about, like, you know, not autobiographical <laughs> or about him in any way. <laughs> no one's ever connected those two before. <laughs> but, um... I guess any more thoughts, guys? Like, uh, like, what did you think? I've blabbled on a lot. I think. No, I, I just think it's great. And like, the only downside about this film, as we said, is Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. I mean, thankfully yeah. he doesn't do the accent, as we said earlier. And it's just the only yeah. miss spot. But I don't. At the time, you know, that was just a given in film. So it's mm. and thankfully he doesn't play the character as a stereotype. No, he doesn't. He plays it so, quite just Charlton Heston. Yeah, so I thankfully, like, yeah. there's no, nothing... To, aside from the face paint, there's nothing like ugh, cringe about it. Well, I mean, it's cringe, mm. but it's not... It could have been worse. Yeah, it could have been one... It could have been like Breakfast at Tiffany's, yes, which exactly. is ruined. I mean, film. it'd be hard to do a main character in a film like this that was like that, but, you know... I know, but, you know, don't put it past the 50s. I think actually the guy who plays what's his name Uncle Uncle Joe I think he's Russian oh really I think he was Russian yeah I didn't look that up actually but it was like you were talking about um, the searches and uh, you know Scar was played by an Austrian or German guy German guy yeah yeah but yeah I thought the film was fantastic and I give it Akim Tamirov played Uncle Joe okay yeah well he I think he had a different birth name 
he's got a birth name in Russian. I can't pronounce. Exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> he was actually Georgian, Russian Empire, but from Georgia. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting. I didn't. That is really interesting. <laughs> I think it just seems. I mean, you know, I think they just seem back then to just cast wherever for whatever. I mean, you know, so for whatever part. I mean, Marlena Dietrich. She's German. And yes. Yeah. She's playing Mexican now, isn't she? And, yeah, she's playing know, like Spanish Mexican, isn't she? Definitely. Spanish. Yeah. Well, Charlton Heston was hired was cast in this film before Orson Welles rewrote it to be. A Mexican yeah, character. So, Mexican. so as far as he knew, he was going to be Mitch, whatever his name was. Yeah. So he probably turned up on set and he's like, oh, okay, I'm now Miguel or whatever his name is. And Okay. As you say, like this film, like Charlton all described it as like, I accidentally made this film. And because he he was just meant to star in it. He, like, And actually looking at it, all the casting is him. Like it's clearly that Charlton was attached mm. and he was stuck with Charlton. I think he liked Charlton. He, he seemed they seemed like they worked well together. But he was like he was attached mm. to his film. And like as you say, Akim Tamaroff, he's a big awesome guy. The guy who played um Joe. Uh he's in the trial and he's in Mr. Ardkin as well. Uh they'd worked together quite a lot. He'd also worked in Alphaville, he's in like um in the sixties. And I think that's and the same with like uh, you said that about Janet Lee, she got a letter from Orson Welles like Marlena Dietrich just got a letter obviously all got a phone call mm-hmm. from Orson and turned up Jar Jar Gawal came in because of like uh, she's not only a little bit but it, because of like the um, casting and stuff like that just because of the producer and it seems like a lot of that was like as soon as Carson uh, as soon as Orson Welles got his hand on this he started filling it with people he trusts and he knows really to make the mm-hmm. film he wanted to make and it's a shame that it it's a shame that it got taken away from him. It is in the edit. It's also it might have actually added to its mystique that that did happen, and that later on this has been restored. Maybe that gives it more power, a little bit, and makes it a more interesting film to watch. I think it's. I just think it's a brilliant film. I think as we've said, I definitely I would give it five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would. Yeah. I just think it's it's really multi layered and it's so ahead of its time. It looks beautiful and i think one of the interesting things about Orson wells is he's he's uh, obviously a fighter in life as we've talked about but he also has a real sense of beauty i think there were certain shots and certain lines mm. that really had that beauty and uh yeah that that is what makes it so special that the um both of those things coming together i don't know how to quite say it but yeah yeah the, it, it elevates something that could have been quite i guess just play by numbers or something mm-hmm. it's, it has sing too and i like awesome and like I, i'm gonna keep <laughs> finding awesome films to watch i like him like i definitely do um well i guess like um all left to say is thank you so much natalie for coming and talking to us about this oh like, thank um, you no uh, i enjoyed it it was really it was really good and so much history behind that mm. film as well it's mm. so fascinating yeah and i really enjoyed it guys so thanks I look forward to uh, you coming back on our next series as well. We'll have to talk Ooh, about yeah. that. Like. Yeah, talking about your um, the person that you played on screen, which I keep turning on Channel 5 and it keeps being on bloody telly. I know. It, they keep playing it. I mean, which is fine by me. I don't mind, I don't think we've but, mentioned. Yeah. Are we allowed to mention that you've played her again since? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so yeah I don't. I'm trying to think. Was I told not to? Think? No, I Natalie's think so, in yeah. the Share Cinematic Universe now. <laughs> <laughs> two, two films. 
yeah yeah well the one the, the second one was like um it's autopsy which is a show in america and uh, it was about sonny bono so it was about his life and i was 1970s share again so <laughs> it was it was yeah it's very well, nice thing well we'll to be able definitely to do. talk about that next time because we want to do a share film in the 80s and we'd love to hear uh, about that so, yes like, definitely we can talk some share that'd be wonderful <laughs> but uh next week i'm gonna ask ollie do you know what it is next week is it the 400 blows it is Me. francois Truffaut, i believe you pronounced it <laughs> The 400 Blows, yeah, that rounds off our 1950s miniseries, where the main miniseries, and that should be really interesting. We're talking about, um, quite it's quite terrifying to me a little bit, where we're going French New Wave. Yeah, we got any guests next week, or is it just, or is it just us? Yeah, we should be getting joined with um, Lorcan Mullen. Oh, yeah, he's got his own podcast, hasn't he? He's got his own podcast, a bit of a film buffer, stand-up comedian and writer, and stuff like that, so it'll be really cool. Interesting, looking forward to that. Um, yeah again thank you very much Natalie for joining us it was uh, super fun as always and uh, yeah please don't forget to reach out to us on uh, Twitter uh, we are at adjust your tracking with a Y not a your yeah uh, you can always rate review and subscribe on whatever you listen to us on so that could be that Spotify uh, Apple Podcasts Amazon Music uh, Stitcher uh, YouTube anywhere you find podcasts and yeah don't forget if the picture's bad always adjust your tracking <laughs>